Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I don't think people are taking time off work to hit this. <laughs> I, uh, you sent me some video of you dancing around the kitchen. It was amazing. <laughs> Music any white drunk college kid can dance to. I'll just stick with the AI stuff. That's yeah. Rowan said that, not me. My math teacher, like, she doesn't explain it that well. Well, that's the hallucination, right? That's like AI hallucination. We have lives, too. <laughs> Mother Shipton's cave. Rich Adam is coming. Jim Harold is coming. I'm doing a lot of laughing, is it? Mm-hmm. Right. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Some of our favorite legends are those of chance encounters in remote areas, when a person crosses paths with something that defies reality as they understand it, as most of us understand it. When one hears these kinds of stories, the first instinct is generally to dismiss them. The details are too bizarre. The person experiencing the event must have mistaken something mundane for something exotic. Or perhaps they were under the influence of mind-altering substances or suffering from mental or physical illness. Those things can certainly happen. Go no further than episode 135 of Astonishing Legends, Sarah and the Spider Woman, which we posted in February 2019. Sarah suffered from anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, and it caused her to experience horrifying hallucinations that couldn't have been more real to her. But what happens when you cross all those potential causes off the list? In 2011, a man went fishing with his brother in a quiet corner of northwestern New Jersey. They were at a beautiful park they knew well on the Musconetcong River in Warren County. New Jersey is very rural in this area. Rolling hills, beautiful farms, and quiet countryside are the norm. The Musconetcong, or Muskie River, feeds into the mighty Delaware River just 24 miles southwest of where they were that day, and it's well known for great fishing. But what should have been a quiet and relaxing outing turned into a life-changing event for Mark. Not too long after they arrived, he felt a presence to his right that drew his attention. As he rotated his head to see what it might be, he saw a giant mantis-like humanoid staring back at him. It was over eight feet tall, and as it looked down upon him, he found himself in absolute shock and panic. He collapsed to his knees in the river, unable to flee or even move. This creature looked more like a praying mantis than a human, but it had human qualities too. And most importantly, Mark felt that it immediately knew everything about him, what he was thinking, who he was. This story is enough to warrant some research from us here at Astonishing Legends. But when we did some digging, we discovered multiple encounters with mantis men, including at least one in the same area, experienced by someone who had never met Mark or heard his story. Well, that's when a story becomes an episode for us. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Standing there in the water, right next to him, was this half-mantis, half-man, almost eight feet tall. Eyewitness Patrick McFadden from Ryan Sprague's new book, Stories from Somewhere in the Skies, 
Join us tonight as we venture into Warren County, New Jersey, and elsewhere, looking for the Mantis Man. And we're back. That we are. Thanks for joining us again this week, folks. We're so glad you could make it. Not a lot of housekeeping tonight, folks, but if you haven't heard our sister show, The Midnight Library, Miranda Merrick has just launched the eighth season of that show, and over four million downloads don't lie. So look for The Midnight Library wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great show. Uh, very different from Astonishing Legends, uh, thankfully, and also very macabre. Yeah, I love it. Uh, we wanted to remind everyone also that we will be at Small Town Monsters Monster Fest in Canton, Ohio, June 2nd and 3rd of 2023. June 2nd, we'll be attending the premiere of Small Town Monsters' new movie on the trail of Bigfoot, Land of the Missing. So that premieres the night before, the 2nd, at the Canton Palace Theater. And yes, we will be there for that too. Tickets will be available for that through the Canton Palace Theater's website. And on Saturday, we'll be at the Monster Fest itself all day at the Doubletree by Hilton. And on top of that, with the help of Small Town Monsters, we've managed to get the use of the speaker room at the hotel after Monster Fest is done with it for the day. So we're going to be in there with our good friend Jim Harold doing an impromptu listener meetup. This is the Doubletree by Hilton in Akron in Ohio, just so you know. And we're not requiring any kind of tickets for that. The room is huge, so we should be fine. If you're there for Monster Fest anyway, we'll be down in that room from from 6 p.m. to 7.30 or so on Saturday, June 3rd. It's going to be a little bit seat of the pants, but no. Uh-oh. Yeah, we're just we're just trying to make something happen for folks that want to hang out mm. a bit uh, with, mm. with us and also with Jim and his fans. So we're only going so we can see Jim Harold in person. Yeah, so. <laughs> that, that is true. Well, tickets yeah. are available now at the Small Town Monsters website and Facebook event page. There will also be tickets at the door. It's family friendly and children under 12 will be admitted for free. Yeah, and, and just in case, I feel like I've written this a little bit confusing. You mm. absolutely need tickets to go to Monster Fest, and you'll need tickets yes, you to go to the movie, which you can get at the theater. <laughs> what I was saying right. you don't need tickets to is our listener meetup uh, with Jim Harold. That's just going to be at the end of the day after Monster Fest wraps up. But uh, yeah. everything else, get your tickets if you're going. You'll need plane tickets, too. If you're going to get on a plane, <laughs> you definitely need a ticket to get on the plane, just so everybody. Yeah, you know? the uh, the meetup is the pants part. That's the, yeah, yeah, the seat of the, that's pants, the pants part. part. Right. Uh, seat the, of the pants. It just comes pants, with man. it. So the earlier part, yes, it's that's the scheduled part and the meetup part is the fun free-for-all with all your fun favorite folks. We'll have links in the show notes to all that, but they've got it on their own website at smalltownmonsters.com slash STM, like Small Town Monsters, and then Monster Fest. So that's S-T-M-M-O-N-S-T-E-R-F-E-S-T. So smalltownmonsters.com slash STM Monster Fest. So go there to get your tickets uh, to the actual event on the 3rd and visit the Canton Palace Theater website for tickets to the premiere the night before on the 2nd. All righty then. Let's get into tonight's show. Well, this is another one of those topics you're like, you're going through, you're trying to figure out what you want to do, <laughs> and it just kind of jumps out at you, both literally and figuratively. You, you don't want this thing jumping out at you. That's what I'm going to say here. <laughs> <laughs> Springing with its powerful legs. Uh, and I'll tell you, though, this one did jump out at me the very first time I heard it on one of my favorite podcasts called Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague, episode yes. 162 titled UFOs, The Mantis Man, and Shades of Death Road. I mean, how can you not listen with a title like that? And that was all the way back in 2020. That's actually, I, th I think it's three or four years now. Yeah, that was dated uh, May 24th, 2020 yeah. is when it, it was released. And I've talked about the elements of this particular episode because 
it's out there and unbelievable, which is what you want in a story. But if you believe the elements, then there are some connections that have come up ever since. Like I said, uh, that's what we do here is remember little details that people have mentioned that seem to match other anecdotes. And you could say, well, so-and-so heard that on this show and he just mimicked it or copied it later. And uh, I don't think so. Just lining up the dates doesn't seem like it, but it's such a vivid description, the way that this happened. And again, when it keeps coming up, you don't easily forget it. So when Scott and I were talking about what we should do next, it's like, let's do one we've been sitting on for quite a while that's really creepy and freaky and, yeah. <laughs> and a little scary. Yeah. Uh, we needed some good old frights back into the lineup here after, uh, we always try to pick something that's fascinating, we think. If this happened to you, you would be scared. Yeah, and what I liked about this is that when Patrick was on Ryan's show, and uh, by the way, Ryan, we reached out to him. He said, use whatever you want from that episode, from my book, whatever. He's great. We're, we're good friends. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, uh, Ryan. Again, that's uh, Somewhere in the Skies. His podcast has been around for quite a while. Not to be confused with uh, Our Strange Skies, which is our yes. other good friend, Rob Christofferson, yes, and his podcast. And they both know each other, and I think they've, they've done crossovers. They're crossing over their skies. And this is a little bit of Patrick's story as well with his friend, Mark. May or may not right. be his real name, but they enter into the same scenario. And what you'll see here as we describe the anecdotes are patterns that seem to happen with most people, I'd say, or many people who experience these kind of strange being encounters. It falls out and sadly in all too common ways that are slightly tragic. So, I mean, in this case, it's, it has its own ramifications of seeing something like this and how it changes your life. Because as we say, it's not just these creature features, it's how does this affect real people? And that's what we got the sense of with Patrick in that uh, when you listen to him, there is a credibility. I mean, yes, we don't know the person. Uh, we weren't there. But there is a credibility that comes through that you're just going to have to either trust it or don't. But the details, like I said, are fascinating and relevant to other things that people have reported seeing. So as we said a minute ago, this was originally mm -hmm. on Ryan Sprague's podcast, Somewhere in the Skies, but he also just had a book come out. And this is what's uh, kind of coincidental about that. It's the whole serendipity. Yeah. Like, oh, well, let's do this and let's do that. And we should know that because we follow Ryan on Twitter. He's been talking about it on Twitter a lot. But I'll confess, I haven't been in the Twitter home feed for several weeks. Yeah. And so I, I didn't know. I knew he was working on a book. And right. I knew the last thing I saw was just, I have an announcement. And he yeah. was being cryptic about it. And that was like a few months ago. <laughs> and I guess I'm presuming that's what this is. It just published on April 25th. And we're recording right now. Yeah. It's May 10th. I know you probably think we're way ahead of the game with this show, but never. Oh, no. We never get ahead. So it's hot and fresh. <laughs> each one, just yeah. right from the that's oven. That's right. That's uh, right. Weirdly, this is a total coincidence, again, because we were thinking like, what's one of the creepiest things we've heard in our yeah. year? Ovra, and I had to go to my personal story notes and story recommendations and listener links and things that people have, have sent me. And this is one that I just noted, again, because I could not forget it. Just the, the three stories that are in there just creep the crap out of me. And yes. here's another weird coincidence. I don't know why, but uh, maybe it's just because my new haircut here. I, I thought I uh, <laughs> it started to look like Mark Harmon from... <laughs> NCIS, where he plays Gibbs, and I just punched up his set of rules here, and it says, rule number 39, there is no such thing as a coincidence. So there you go. <laughs> Listen to Gibbs. Yeah. He knows what he's go. doing. There you go. Uh, but no, it's just, it was an odd thing. It's like, well, then that's pretty apropos. So why not launch with this and finally dive into one of our favorite tropes of the 
let's say, not only the uh, UFO phenomenon, but also the abduction aspect of that. And this story that we're going to share with you, which is the story back from that episode in uh, May 2020 that he did, it is in his brand new book that just came out at the end of April. It's in chapter 43. The book is by Ryan Sprague. It's called Stories from Somewhere in the Skies. You can get it on Amazon. It's available on Kindle. It's also available at the publishing website, Beyond the Fray Publishing, uh, which is, uh, again, they're friends of ours as well. Shannon LeGrow is a co-founder of that company. A little backstory. Uh, As we said earlier, Ryan originally covered this back in May of 2020. I had to go back. I always am like, what's our own timeline on that? We were finishing mm. up right when he put this out. We were finishing the Kira object. For really? How long ago does that feel to you? Yeah. Uh, that's when, yeah. No, those don't line up. I believe uh, there was uh, some kind of um, illness going around or just the start of it. Would that be yes. correct? At, at, at that yes. March some there. Things and were bad. It's a, yeah. yeah, it was a whole list of uh, and round of shows after that. But it's got a certain feeling and it doesn't line up with when I remember hearing this story. But like I said, there are elements that I've never forgotten and made connections to along the way, even with the Kira object about uh, people being, uh, let's just say, beams of light being shot out, goo, different things happening that are thematic within this. And, and like I said, if people are all just borrowing each other's stories, uh, I applaud them because that's a lot of work and uh, to keep this all straight. Yeah, it is. And the other thing that uh, happened, and this was, I don't know, this may have been a year ago or so now, Ryan had reached out to us on Twitter. He had hit me up and he was like, man, I have been looking for my own copy of the December 2017 New York Times cover story with the the famous issue that came out with uh, Commander David Fravers account of the Tic Tac UFO in it on the front page of the New York Times. Right. And when that came out that day, I had the foresight to be like, oh, this is, I got I should get more than <laughs> one of these. And I got two. Yeah. I should have gotten even more, but I got like I two. Know. I was like, yeah. I get one for Forrest. But Forrest and I, whenever we get together, we always forget that we both have a bunch of crap we need to give each yeah. other and we just keep it forever. But so I forgot to give it to him. And then Ryan was like, do you have one? And I was like, well, yeah, technically I have an extra one, but it's Forrest. And uh, <laughs> let me talk to him. And I reached out to Forrest right. and Forrest was like, give it to Ryan. He'd been looking oh, for two years. Like Micah Hanks, he's going to treat it properly, get it mounted and yes. uh, take care of it where mine will be in a big stack of old newspapers yellowing where eventually my mom just throws them all out. That's <laughs> That would have been its fate. But no, I knew he was going to treat it right and he deserves yeah. it. And again, this is really his milieu. This is, he's, I, I, you look through all of the people he's interviewed yeah. and it's all the big names. Yeah. Christopher Mellon, uh, Avi Loeb as well. Our upcoming guest. Brandon Fugel from Skinwalker Ranch. It's like, hey, we should, oh, he's already done it. That's, <laughs> yeah, so I I, try, I don't want to look at it too long. But uh, yeah, if you want uh, interviews, they're really good. And again, he is uh, very skilled at this. He's been doing the interview thing for years and is especially adroit at getting people to tell really intimate stories. I think that's yes. his strong point. You know, these are really personal intimate things that have happened to people. And he really makes people feel comfortable, trusted, and uh, he gets the story out of them. And, and that's what yes. counts in this game. So, yeah. Yes, indeed. And we're going to be having him on as a guest ourselves here in the very near future. He said he wanted to do that and we would love to have him. So we'll be doing that before too long. So it's time to tell this story, which again, we're sharing with Ryan's gracious permission. We're going to share the version of it here that he printed in his book, the one we just mentioned that just came out. If you want to hear Patrick tell it himself, you can listen to uh, Ryan's episode 162, which we'll have a link to in the show notes of Somewhere in the Skies. But for now, we're going to have Mr. Forrest Burgess read the story that piqued our interest when we first heard it. For this story, we have to go back to 2011, 
to an experience a friend of mine had in the northwest corner of New Jersey in a rural area of the Musconetcon River, a location that I had a history with. My friend Mark is a very prominent businessman and upstanding member of the community. So when he talks, people tend to listen. And when he dropped this story on me one day, I was shell-shocked, to say the least. He had kept it bottled up for almost three years and finally unloaded it for the first time on me. So again, back in 2011, he and his brother were fishing one day on the river. They both had hip waders on at the time. So they were standing in the water and they just kept hearing this high whizzing sound. He and his brother just kept looking at each other, not knowing what to make of it. After a few minutes, he had the compulsion to look to his right. And that was when he saw it. Standing there in the water, right next to him, was this half-mantis, half-man, almost eight feet tall. He said it was way more insect-like than it looked like a man, but it had the physical maneuvers and the motor functions of a human. This thing was looming over him. He said he couldn't believe what he was looking at, obviously, but he also said in the first couple of moments, he felt that this thing couldn't believe that it was actually being seen. Mark immediately fell back into the water out of pure fright. He said as he was looking at it, it was looking back at him, and that it was peering deep into his soul, and that it was very overwhelming. He didn't feel any evil coming from it, and it felt like what he believed it would have been like looking at God. This entire experience, he said, lasted for all of 15 seconds. Suddenly, there was this body-length halo around the mantis man, this orange light, and then almost immediately, the mantis man completely disappeared. After it disappeared, he looked to his brother and he could tell immediately that his brother had seen it as well. The brother left Mark there, trying to claw his way out of the water. Mark eventually made it back to the car and tried to contact his brother, but he was long gone by then. Since that day, the brothers barely speak. And every time Mark has tried to bring it up, the brother refuses to talk about it. So this brings us to 2014. I found myself almost in the exact same location where Mark's experience had taken place. I took my dog for a walk one night, and we went into an old abandoned campground that was right there. I decided to cut off the trail and walk into the woods a little bit. As I was walking with the dog, I started looking into the woods. That was when I saw this very bright orange orb about 50 or so yards away. At first, I thought maybe it was a garage light or something, but I knew the area pretty well and realized there were no houses or anything back there. It definitely wasn't somebody with a flashlight either because this orange light kept going from the forest floor up into the trees. Then it would come back down, just moving up and down over and over again. The forest floor was very flat, so I sat there with the dog and just looked at this thing. As I was looking at it, I could tell it was moving a little closer and getting brighter. It was a very weird orange. It would go from dark to light, almost like it was refracting light and then turning it into these different bright and dark orange colors. The other thing that I found very strange was that the entire forest was completely quiet. Not a single sound of animals, insects, or even the wind. Dead silent. As I was noticing the complete lack of noise, 
the most incredible thing happened. Every four-legged animal in the woods just went blowing by me on both sides of my periphery. Deer, rabbits, and a bunch of other creatures. They were all around me and my dog. My dog wasn't even on her feet when this happened. She was just lying there, trembling. And when I looked back and caught focus of this orange light, I noticed it was still moving towards me at a more rapid pace now. I was petrified. I eventually got to my feet, and without my dog even getting up, I just dragged her out of the woods to where the road to the campground was. I looked back, and I saw that the orange light started moving right to where I was sitting. As I stood there, with all of the hair in my body standing up, I watched this orange light go from just hovering in the woods to shooting straight up through the canopy of the trees and disappearing out of sight. I contacted Mark and told him about this. We had gotten together many times after that to do nothing but discuss my event and his. We used to get together maybe once every two weeks. Then it was like twice a week. I basically became like a therapist for him. He would just recount the story over and over again, and we would break it apart. So I told him one day, let me look up if anybody else has seen this thing on the river. And to our surprise, there's a guy who wasn't far away who made an entire website on the Mantis Man of the Musconecton River. Apparently, this thing has been seen multiple times by different people. But this guy, what he said would resonate with Mark and gave me chills. He told us that when he saw this mantis man, it was completely enveloped in a light and then disappeared. He described it, just as Mark had, like looking at God. When I'm not flipping bungalows for wealthy Martians, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to Scott and Forrest. Okay, so this story is very compelling to me. I love the way it's told. So here's what's interesting to me about this. And part of our research and putting this episode together, one of the things that you and I did was we watched uh, season three, episode eight of Monsters Mm -hmm. and Mysteries in America, which came out some time ago. And on that, they did a segment in that particular episode on the Mantis Man. It's the third segment, I believe. It's about 20 minutes of stuff. And in that segment, they talked to this same person. What, what was his name, Forrest, on the Monsters and Mysteries of, in America? Okay, so Joe Parenti. Yes. Uh, and that was the guy who was with his brother. Now, Paul Jacks is another person on camera. He was the gentleman who uh, appears first, and he was yeah. fishing with his boss. Right. And they had similar but slightly different encounters. Right, and that account's going to be on Lon's website that we're going to talk about in a minute, yeah. I'm pretty sure. But this one that was depicted in season three, episode eight of Monsters and Mysteries in America, I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm just now being able to put this together as we're recording, right. which is kind of fun. Joe Parenti would be the person that Patrick was friends with, I think. So I think because this is- Perhaps. Of course, they're call, he's calling him Mark. Like we said, these names are all over the place. Yeah. It might be that Ryan and publishers are protecting some people's names. But I believe that this story, because this story that is being relayed about the two brothers and this experience is the same story that we saw on Monsters and Mysteries in America. Patrick knows 
this guy who calls himself Joe Parenti right. on Monsters and Mysteries in America. And he's heard that story, and I think he's friends with him. And I think Joe has lost touch with his brother, which was not yeah. implied on Monsters and Mysteries in America. Uh, no, you can see not. why no. you wouldn't necessarily want to do that. Right. Because that's a personal detail. But I think that that's what's happening. And then Patrick himself goes yeah. back to the same area where Joe and his brother had this experience. That's when he sees the orb, the orange orb, which will come right. up again later. And what's okay. but what's also interesting about this, and it's something we want to point out, and Joe says it on Monsters and Mysteries in America, and it's a little bit implied here, but I think people need to understand. He was so scared that, as he said, he, quote, lost control of his bodily functions. He literally pooped his pants. Well, he pooped <laughs> his pants. He admitted that he pooped his pants. And I'm just going to go again. It's okay. one of those things that I'll say. Yeah. You're going a long way for a hoax if you're pooping your pants <laughs> and then coming out about it. So Okay, just and then it. there could be people, I'm sure there will be, who said, uh, well, that's just an excuse for the accident. You know what I'm right, saying? Like, right, well, I right, had to right. because this happened. Thing. But he said in the other account, which I think we're going to get to in a minute, he said he sat down in the water because he was embarrassed. He right. didn't want his brother to real think, oh, you just had this accident. He's like, he wanted to explain why it happened, but, you know, that's an intense fear right there. Here's where there are differences in the story. And again, we're trying to line this up and yeah. there are similarities and there are differences in the way that Patrick tells it. The brother also saw it in the way right. that it's portrayed on the show is that the brother was, uh, of course, down the river. As you, as you do, you don't fish usually Around right the next bend. to each other. Yeah. yeah, because you're, yeah. you're going to get your lines tangled. So they're, and they're fly fishing requires yeah. a lot of space. In the way that Patrick tells it, the brother was there. Again, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, some of the descriptions are the same, at least with Joe Parenti's description. If you're curious about the patch of uh, river, uh, he said they left or were at Stevens Park and they headed out to where there's a small bunch of islands on the river. It sounded like sandbars or, or tiny islands, and that's where they started out. And again, it's very close. So I think it could be the same. I'm not totally convinced. Although, like I said, there's always two people, like I said, two guys, you know, there was one with his boss. But what I thought was interesting about Patrick's version is that they both saw it. And again, you have that confirmation. And there is a sad element to it in what we just read here in that the brother was so fearful. He left his brother. He left yeah. his kin. I can't imagine what it's like to be that scared where you leave your relative, you know, even a good friend. Yeah. And they also fell out of touch. Yeah. Well, yeah, which is something we have heard and explained on our own show a billion times over the right. years. I mean, I'm exaggerating. A billion is, that's a high number. That's true. But you I, did. We, it's coming up a lot of times, though, uh, right. and, and anybody knows. We haven't covered Travis Walton, but everybody knows that those guys kind of fell out of touch, and other people that have had experiences, well, uh, people don't necessarily want to be a part of it anymore. You look at Terry Lovelace and his buddy. After their experience, things got a little strange, and that's from uh, Incident at Devil's Den, which we covered, right. and also The Reckoning at Devil's Den, if you want to look back for older episodes. But uh, he was out there with his best friend. I would say there's a lot of patterns that repeat themselves in these kinds of encounters. And you could say, well, they were goofing around and something happened and they needed a cover story. And this is what they landed on because they thought it'd be so outrageous. No, who could question it or whatever, you know, whatever people come up with the reason. I just don't buy that. There's easier uh, explanations if you're going to fake that. But. Yeah. I mean, because you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be made fun of. It's like of all the cover stories to come up with, you're going to come right. up with one where you saw a giant insect that made you crap your pants. I mean, really, is that going to be worse than what other thing could possibly be worse than that story that you're now telling right. everyone? And people are, a lot of people are making fun of you or whatever. He was forthcoming with that detail. Like I said, that's pretty brave. It's brave to go on TV and tell this story. 
especially with uh, Travis Walton's story. Yeah. One of the people would say it's an excuse that they were behind on their lumber clearing contract. And right. that was a good excuse to like, oh my God, you know, one of the Travis, he got abducted with a UFO. That's why we're late and we need to extend the contract or still get paid. That was one argument against that. It's like, again, it's, so it's much a weird one to come up with rather than like, oh, yeah. a tree fell in the truck and it crushed. And we, you know, so we, <laughs> you we know, there's easier, yeah. more reasonable things to come up with. In this case, though, like I said, there's a lot of details. If it's not exactly the same, then it leads me to believe that there are some connections to the same being, let's say, let's call it for this yeah. at, at this moment, and that a lot of the same things were experienced. So as Joe said, they both heard a high-pitched whir, as yeah. Patrick describes, it was a, uh, like a very high-pitched buzzing preceding the sighting. There was, as Patrick describes, this thing looked straight into his soul and just had, just knew everything about him. Past, yeah. present, future, whatever you want to say. Same thing with Joe Parenti. He says this thing was sucking info from him before he was even aware of it. Later yeah. on, I'm going to have a brief description, actually, from a entomological paper describing what is technically called when a praying mantis first encounters a prey or a predator. Because there's a there's a right. term for that, and then you'll decide uh, whether this was uh, th this fits this <laughs> first encounter reaction. Let's say. But this thing reminded me the most of Terry Lovelace's encounters and also some other ones that appear in his second book called uh, Devil's Down the Reckoning and where he had about 50 other people who rode into him with other strange encounters that may or may not be related. But that recurring pattern of people see this and it's so out of your experience and world and belief system, it ruins you. It ruins relationships. It ruined Toby and Terry's relationship. Uh, there's another story in his book, The Reckoning, of the, the two sisters, the two young girls who, uh, if you remember us telling that story, mm -hmm. maybe 9 and 12, saw that floating carousel out in the field in the, at their grandparents' yes. place, and they were so entranced and mesmerized sitting on the edge of the dirt bank there that they never got along after that. The younger yeah. sister just refused to talk about it, discuss it, had a lot of trouble in life later on. That's usually the other thing is that one person out of the two has it's more traumatic. trouble than the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's PTSD. I mean, that's yeah. the bottom line. This is PTSD from these significant experiences. And that, I think that's one of the things that you get. That's another takeaway from the guy that you see right. on the Monsters and Mysteries episode who may or may not be the same person in yeah. Ryan's book. He's still upset about it. And when you watch him describe it on Monsters and Mysteries, he closes his eyes. He's visualizing what yeah. he remembers and he's doing a physical gestures describing how big it was and how it opened up and showed it, showed him, uh, it was a show of strength, which again right. is something Forrest is going to touch on in a minute here, but it seemed like a very visceral experience for him. Oh, absolutely. And, and the description, this is also, as we line these up, because as we go through these anecdotes, we're going to see, this is burned in your memory. And I've often thought about this as a kid due to this day. It's something that my dad told me, like philosophically, like what if you were to see something that is beyond our experience as human beings, that is impossible? As my dad put that in my head early on, just as like, imagine what that's like as a, just a philosophical uh, thought exercise and think about it. We see sea creatures now, especially with the internet. Uh, it's like a National Geographic email, like, hey, check out this new creature that was photographed. 
and they're weird and they're wild and it could be very strange where it's an Instagram post. I mean, there's a fish that has its eyes on the inside of its head. Imagine this. Yeah. And, the, and the top of it, I, that's one of my favorites just because they, they look yeah. like goofy cartoon eyes. Yeah. But think about it. It's not the eyes are inset into the skull or the, well, the head of the fish, but they're inside. Imagine like your eyeballs being at the center of your head and the yeah. top of your head is translucent clear. And that's how it sees out. It's like, what's the reason for that? I don't know, yeah. you know, why nature decided to do that, but it's pretty cool looking and it's nothing I've ever seen, but you've still seen a fish. Right. Now, here's the thing. We've seen this insect before. A lot of people have seen, uh, well, even on the show, you described uh, <laughs> letting out a shriek when you're trying to show your son one on a, on a and take a video of oh, it. Oh, yes. I've talked years about that ago. on the on the show before. Yeah, I'm going right. to have to dig that up for this episode. We'll right. put it in the photo gallery. I yes. had a praying mantis on my arm and I told my son, it's like, no, they move kind of slow. You don't have to worry. You just got to be cool. And then it runs up my <laughs> arm and you hear me like scream and drop my phone. So, I mean, it went fast. I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize it was as fast, which we'll talk about tonight, but it's, well, that's, you know, yeah, that's, that's one aspect where this is bug sized. You're used to that. Yeah. And yeah, like I said, you can, we're not scared of the idea of the bug or the creature or the, the cryptid or whatever, but we can always be startled. And in this case though, you've never seen a praying mantis that's eight feet tall and right. has a bipedal human-like lower half, let's say. Yeah. It's something yeah. outside of possibility. It's not clear to me if it's bipedal or because in the description here that is in Ryan's book, it says, right. well, it's more insect than man, but it moved like a man, which I was like, right. okay, that's interesting. Because the, in the in the depictions and the CGI and stuff that's in Monsters and Mysteries in America and, and the most of the depictions you see on the internet that are talking about this, people are just, illustrators are just creating giant pictures of mantises. Well, this is- but There's something again. about the body language or the <laughs> right. communication here that uh, seemed to make an impression on that eyewitness, whether it yeah. be Mark or Joe, whatever their name is from this story. Right, right. I think in this case, though, it's not insect-like, okay? And as we're going to hear before I forget, Paul Jacks describes the thorax or the, the middle of it as being kind of pinched and very narrow. And that's more bug-like. Yeah. That is like the yeah. thorax or the the midsection. That's not as human-like. The descriptions we get here is that the physicality and the motion and the motor motion is less insect-like and more human-like, which is why you get that impression. And here's what I would say is that if you saw something that was totally all like a praying mantis, but it just seemed really large. Well, it's hard to say. Like if you saw it far away, it's just like you, you just think, okay, my eyes have goofed up. Maybe I've got a brain disorder. You know, like I said, like it shouldn't be yeah. that large. And I'll put it this way. I have a good friend who um, he's got one eye. And so his depth perception is off. And I think one time he was startled because there was a fly on the screen and to him in that instant when he just noticed it, it looked huge. And he's right. like, whoa, 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 oh, it's not that big. It's just a regular fly size, but it could have been the size of a tennis ball. You know, <laughs> like this, that initial perception was off. But here, like I said, 15 seconds of looking at this thing as described, and you know what you're looking at. Plus, there's also a physiological and psychological response that's different than just seeing an animal or even a weird insect that you've never seen before. This is... It's not a form that you've never seen, but just in this combination was uh, very intense, like I said, but both describe, actually most people describe seeing this thing, including Terry Lovelace, is that somehow there is a telepathic ability, an evolved creature, like I said, uh, we've talked about, I'll just 
say this now in my, as I'm building this theory of what these things are, Alan Watts, when we did a, um, a junk drawer early on, I was talking about his theory that he came up with in the late 50s of where technology is headed. And it's not because he's a technologist per se or a computer scientist is that being a philosopher, you can see where these trends are going. He said, look, you know, the way that technology develops is that we will meld eventually with technology, with computers. And again, computers back then were the size of a spare bedroom, right? And larger, yeah. uh, just right. to do simple computing functions. And we didn't have really so much in the way of mobile cordless telephones, right? But he could see that first you have the cord or the wire, and then we move past that and things become wireless. Well, what's beyond wireless is that then you don't, at some point, you will have an implant, a very black mirror-ish, right? You have an implant mm -hmm. in that connects with the computer. And eventually, the evolution of that is that you start to get rid of some of the computer and you meld with the technology. So it's a merged neural network where every human now is connected to a computer network. It's kind of all one the same, and we can all read each other's minds. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> you may not have a choice. <laughs> oh, I, I'm going to have a choice. I'm going to well, make can, a choice. I don't think yeah. there's an opt-out uh, radio button you can click. But the, the idea, though, is that as you emerge and you merge with machines and you evolve, you have to get used to the idea. And again, that's, I think I see this with the younger generations. There's less concern with privacy because they've yeah. grown up having much less of it than us Gen Xers, where it's like, to heck with you, the man. You're not, we're not selling out our information to you. Whereas, you know, younger folks, like, they're okay with it because as soon as you get on a device, you've already sold your information. It's not a big deal, as much of a big deal. And you just don't notice it in here. When we're all kind of hooked up, it's all equitable unless there's one person in charge whose mind you can't read. And I've right. said this on the last junk drawer. <laughs> it's nothing new. I'm basically uh, parroting the, uh, the thoughts of Alan Watts. Then you have an authoritarian despot who can control everybody because you don't know what he's thinking, but he also knows everything everyone else is thinking. Right. And at this point, you, you don't have any secrets, but then it's a whole new society. So at that point, perhaps you have a telepathic uh, you start to develop and evolve into a telepathic group of beings, let's say. And is that what's happening here? Is that they're so far advanced, they look at you instantly, deep into your soul, they know everything about you because they also know everything about each other of their own kind. It's right. not a big deal. But to us, it's deeply shocking, invasive, and just terrifying. You're totally naked from the inside out to this strange creature immediately. And like right. Joe said, it was sucking the info out of him just like an instant and you can't do anything about it before he was in a, even aware of what was happening. Different though than an encounter with Indrid Cold where he comes up and uh, if you believe Woody Derenberg, he comes up and smiles to you and it's like, hey, he's talking with me. And I just noticed he wasn't really moving his lips. That's a reference to the Mothman for people who have not heard our series or are not familiar with that story. Right. He was being friendly. You know, like I said, yeah. he's not saying, like, <laughs> Rich had him, how can we help you to stop screaming? Uh, he was just asking him questions, but would he notice, it's like, oh, I'm having a conversation. I notice I'm the one talking. I'm moving my mouth and the air is coming out and forming words. But this other fella isn't. He's just grinning yeah. at me. And he seems nice. Do not be but, afraid. Yeah, he's, he seems nice, but he's he's talking to me in my head. So getting back to a little bit of the, the differences and uh, of the descriptions, again, I'm not sure where to, to place this, but I think it could be the same thing with slight variations. Again, someone's telling the other person's story. Description from Joe Parenti, seven feet tall, 
Patrick's is about eight feet tall, intense eyes. Joe's description, it said it had wings. He described he could see the scales and it having, you know, like I said, a very broad chest. It does a display of the wings. Like, again, I'm going to explain that before, like an insect does, just of like, are you friend or foe? Well, like a praying mantis does, right? When you yeah. first, if you have them in your hand and they don't know, you know, again, you're this big creature. They really, I don't think, get a sense of what you are. You could just be a freaky looking tree to them. Right. But once they assess a threat, then they go through these motions. As Joe described, brown and black scales. No description from Patrick from here. Uh, the other thing, though, is how this thing entered and exited. As Patrick describes, a halo of orange light that he would connect to later his later experience of this weird orange light. Maybe they are connected along with this orb or craft or whatever it was. Joe, on the other hand, describes a fog that comes up, which mm -hmm. this mysterious fog, which this thing kind of disappeared in. And to me, Joe's description is more insect-like. But again, you're you're not seeing what Joe did CG with. You're seeing what the show did at the time. It's right. like, well, this is as close right. as I can get. And some producer said, yeah, good, good enough. So, right. Right. but the way he described it, the exiting is simple. It's like it had just appeared and then it disappeared. And then you wonder, is this some kind of interdimensional incursion? Yeah, but the other witness in the story in the uh, segment on Monsters and Mysteries in America, mm -hmm. he said it disappeared, but he also said it was still there. He said, I, right. I, I felt like it was oh. still there. He felt okay. like it cloaked. That is an important thing. Yes. Now we're talking about another technology, which may be an evolved. Here's the other thing that um, our friend Adam talked to us about. We were in our group chat and uh, with Jeremy Corbell, and we were talking about the interesting aspect that it seems predators will not touch animals that have been killed by lightning. And it seems to be the same report for animals found that have been mutilated. There's no predation. Cattle mutilations. Yeah, specifically. yeah cattle mutilations, yes. exactly. Most There's the no time. predation, unlike a natural death. Vultures, coyotes, uh, wolves, nothing will touch these animals. And I wondered, is it something to do with the electricity, the electromagnetic signature that is left either by lightning or whatever this other weird and uh, disturbing phenomena is? When it happens, do animals just sense it? It's like, I don't know, something's wrong with that thing. I'm not that hungry. I'm going right, to go right. find something else. And then Adam talked about the Hex suit. So it's an H-E-C-S is the brand and the company. And we didn't really dig into this, but basically it's a technology that hunters can use as part of their clothing or these suits to mask your bioelectric signature. And if you're careful, basically you can sneak up much closer to animals because they, they don't really detect you. There's something very strange about that and the way that, especially yeah. how animals perceive reality and, and objects, but it's something that throws them off. And then you wonder if this thing is being cloaked. Again, we've heard that story from hunters before, and it is a lot like the predator phenomenon from the movie with Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And then it looks like smeared imagery that you're seeing with your eyes, that there's something yeah. there and it doesn't look right. But if it holds still, it kind of blends in. But as soon as it moves, you start to see like a digital smearing. And is uh, is this akin to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I'm going to come back to when we get to our conclusions. So it turns out part of what makes this story really interesting is that there's not just one or two encounters. There's multiple encounters. Now, there's right. not tons of them, but there's more than one. And these stories are being told by people who've never met each other, and the details are remarkably similar. So whenever you see something like that, you think, okay, something is going on here. And there were some stories on a blog run by 
Lon Strickler. And this is somebody we've mentioned on the show before. He has a, uh, well, frankly, it's one of the most well-known paranormal blogs in the world. It's called phantomsandmonsters.com. Yeah, yeah. We've referred to Lon numerous times over the years. I think most recently when he was documenting the new Mothman sightings in the Chicago area. But I mean, he has covered everything. He's been doing this forever. He's very prolific. We'll have links to his website and to all of these links of his that we'll be referring to. I did reach out to him by email and say, hey, we're going to talk about some of your blog entries here. Is that okay with you? And he said, absolutely. Just make sure and let people know where I am. So Mm -hmm. we're doing that. So now we want to share a couple of entries from a blog post that he made on the Mantis Man. Again, we have links to this in our show notes, but the uh, the blog title is Praying Mantis Man Sighting, Musconetcong River, Hackettstown, New Jersey. A lot of this centers around Hackettstown, actually. Right. This is from July of 2011, so this is a while back. These are Lon's words on this uh, blog page. I received an email on Monday in reference to a strange sighting in northwest New Jersey. I contacted the witness for more information. The actual correspondence follows. Lon, I have recently been doing research regarding an encounter I had about five years ago. Fly fishing on the Musconetcong River in New Jersey with my boss, I saw briefly what I could only describe as a praying mantis man. Although the water was clear, there had been heavy rains the past couple of days. We should not have been out there. The river was smooth, but the current was exceptionally strong. I was leaning backwards and digging my heels into the gravel, but the river was still kicking me along pretty good, sketchy navigating. Please know, I am, quote, privy to the paranormal, end quote, and always have been. Shadow people, ghosts, whatever. But what I encountered that day was not spirit. It was a biological living creature. But it disappeared into thin air almost as soon as I saw it. For whatever reason, my searches at the time turned up nothing. But then by chance, I came across an alien race type video on YouTube. And there in the artwork, I saw what I saw ancient mantis leaders. So when I began searching mantis alien instead of praying mantis man, I found a lot more. They say that they are interdimensional, whatever that means, but I did not get that impression. No, this creature was cloaked. And because of both my innate sensory perception skills and the particular physical circumstances at the time, which is important, I can add details if you're interested, I just caught it. Movement out of the corner of my eye to my left, and there it was. Humanoid, tall, six foot at least. No reference points, but I sense six six or six seven. Moving away from me, back up the bank. I am chest high in the river. The first thing I see was the grasshopper thigh, but bending forward like a human. Then the whole form. He is looking at me over his shoulder, moving up the bank, astonished. Amazed at what? That I'm in the water in a strong current, that I can see him? But yes, we lock eyes, and this creature is astonished. I get the sense that he can't believe I am in the water, that he can't believe I have seen him, and that I'm not perturbed at all. Something of all three, I still don't know. Just astonishment, and he is actually trying to get away from me and the water. Triangular head, huge, slanted black eyes, just like a praying mantis. Its whole body was gangly, knobby but you could still sense it was powerful. And no, I would not say it was a big bug. It was definitely humanoid, despite the mantis insect qualities. No, I did not tell my boss about this, who was in the water too, about 50 yards behind me at the time. Being privy to the paranormal, you just see these things and sort of go, okay, no fear, no nothing. (laughs) Yeah. But I do get the sense that my whatever attitude contributed to this creature's astonishment. Frankly, I didn't give the encounter much thought until recently. 
I can forward more details. I just believe now that this encounter was somehow very important. Lon interjects here, I wrote back to the witness. I'm not going to reveal a name at this time. And I requested further details. Here are the additional details. Lon points out the description of the head is not too uncommon from other sightings that have been reported. And so here's what the gentleman wrote back mm-hmm. the second time. This took place in Hackettstown, New Jersey. This is exactly, by the way, folks, where the first mm-hmm. sighting was we mentioned. The stretch of the Musconetcong River here is unusual in that its west bank borders Route 46, a local highway congested with lots of stores, but the east bank where we were fishing borders fields and farmlands. No bank to speak of on the developed side, but the sloping bank on the rural side was high, 10 feet. A strip of trees about 10 to 20 yards thick separated the river from the fields beyond, but there was the occasional gap or path, each about 20 yards wide, that allowed clear access to the river. Like I mentioned, the weather had been bad the previous several days, and the sky was white and heavy. It was mid-afternoon. When I saw the mantis man, it was in one of those gaps, moving back up the bank towards the fields, looking back at me over its left shoulder, about 15 to 20 yards away. So understand that it was several feet above me. I looked up at it, and framed clearly against the blank white sky, like a full ghost apparition. It was indeed clear, but nevertheless nearly transparent and fading fast. Then. It evaporated mid-stride. Again, I stressed the strong impression that the mantis man was cloaked, and I caught it just right. It abruptly found itself against a new blank background and was adjusting quickly. No, I do not believe it slipped into another dimension or plane. I detected movement and first saw that strong left thigh and strong right calf, then the whole thing, and immediately those eyes and face. The whole encounter was only a couple of seconds. I cannot tell you with any strong certainty what its hands or feet looked like. I wasn't looking there. But I can tell you that its arms were normal and not the literal mantis forelegs I have recently seen in drawings of these, quote, aliens. That's really about it. If you have any other questions, please contact me. Mm. So this story mirrors the first of the two stories Mm -hmm. on the Monsters in America series. The second one being Joe Parenti, who was Will's brother. This more accurately details... That first story that you were talking about, we were making reference to when we talked about it backing up the bank. And what you're talking about a minute ago with the whole predator cloaking thing, which has come up on the show a million times, but Mm -hmm. that does seem to be a common thing. What I like about this guy's perception is what he's saying, this particular witness, whose name on the Monsters in America series was the entirely unbelievable Paul Jacks. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why you're sticking on that. I don't know anybody whose last name is Jacks. But anyway, okay. Uh, right. but I'm not trying to dox people that don't want to no, be doxed, by no. the way. I just, I, I think it's funny the names that people pick when they're trying to cover their names up. But anyway, so Paul Jacks sees this thing backing <laughs> up the cliff. And I like though that he's talking about how he's yeah. below it. And he can see it sort of shimmering in my mind. And I think he's written this really well. The way he's describing it is a lot like, I can't remember the names of the images, but the ones where you relax your eyes. Well, the magic eye. Uh, yeah, the magic, you know, whatever it is. Remember you those in the you, 3D. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, some folks yeah. can't do it. Other folks can. You have to take your eyes out of focus for a bit. and kind of and, and But it's amazing how that works, is that you'll see a uh, within the within the squares or... Within the pattern, you will see an image, and it's 3D. And I think that there's people that are better at this naturally. I had to train myself to do that. I stared at mm-hmm. those things for like probably a year. And then wow. once I got uh, it, I could do it just yeah. on. And now I can it's do like it. It's like juggling. Even, yeah, you I can do it when there's no yeah. pattern to even look at. You can do that thing where you zone out. And I, it's funny, just a couple of days ago, and 
maybe the universe wanted me to read this Reddit thread, but then again, Ooh. I was probably looking at all the Reddit threads. That's true. Somebody posted a thing and said, today I learned or that some people right. can adjust the focal point of their eyesight, like the depth, yeah. as opposed to not having any control over it. You just focus on wherever your eyes fall. And right. like the first comment was like, I thought everybody could do that, which means yeah. that some of us are doing it and some of us aren't. And of course, how yeah. who would know who is and who isn't? And maybe that's what this guy's doing a little bit. Or maybe he's a hunter. He's used to being out in the woods and looking right. for things that are camouflaged. Because what he's describing here sounds very biological. It sounds like a chameleon or a cuttlefish that's like, I'm going to park on this coral. And when I get done in a few seconds, you're not going to be able to see me anymore. Right. And that's a little bit what this seems like this thing is doing. The natural, uh, let's say more natural, not that these things aren't natural. I would never insult them as a, uh, as a, <laughs> as a, as a group of beings, as a society, the regular praying mantis, praying mantis we're used to, that's one of their defense mechanisms, both yeah. as a skilled predator, but also to keep from being prey themselves. You know, they can be leaf-like, they can blend in. Uh, they're different colors. There's all different kinds of manner of uh, of mantis. You know, not as good as the stick bug. They've got really the, the corner of the market on that one. And, th and there's also the leaf bug. Yes, uh, I love And so those. just naturally, though, they're, they're very stalky. Like you said, this thing was bulbous. But here's the common denominator between uh, at least the stories. Look, folks, if you're interested in and uh, manti, mantis stories, mantis men stories, there's a ton of them. Go to the uh, Mysterious Universe website. I think you'll have to subscribe for that, but uh, for five bucks a month, you can uh, read a ton of articles there. It's not that super common, not like yeah. what we see with the greys or any the other beings that people have described, but it is a significant trope, I would say, of this experience and that it's out there. But like I said, it's not the one that people usually go to which I don't know if that lends any more credence to these reports, but it's fascinating because that was what fascinated us. Like, what's going on with the with the bug thing here? Like, yeah. they they rule our world in a microscopic way. Wasn't that their report there, the most uh, numerous, copious, uh, the most populous creature on this planet are ants, right? And right. I can't remember the, the figure, but it's trillions, right? And... Uh, if you give enough time, uh, let's say, on a distant planet with a bunch of insects, will they evolve to something that's intelligent? Well, that's a discussion and thought experiment for people uh, smarter than us. But the idea is that uh, if you could have a civilization that developed for that long, and, and again, I don't know, uh, from you'd be hard to gauge that from our understanding of biology because that's not our experience on this earth. Yeah. But on something else, like, uh, you know, again, that's been put forth. What if there's very smart squid out there? Uh, you, you just mentioned cuttlefish. Yeah. Extremely intelligent. Very yeah. short lives. And, 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 and the theory is that... Octopi? Yeah. Octopuses or octopi. Oh, you either can say either acceptable. one? Okay. Okay. Depending on your taste. It's, do you say Elvises or Elvi? <laughs> <laughs> that was an old SNL sketch you should be yeah. aware of. Yeah. Uh, the idea, though, is that they, because they don't live that long, they have to be extra smart to be successful right. in the short amount of time that they do live. And they're also masters of deception and camouflage. And of course, if you watched Arrival, those are octopus-like creatures. They're just uh, very intelligent, but uh, different setup, let's say, biologically. Yeah. But yeah. the common denominator here is what, Scott? Water. And I yeah. wonder, and again, that's one of the things that grabbed me, stuck with me when I first heard this episode on Somewhere in the Skies, is that this thing seemed astonished to see the other person. It wasn't like... 
oh, I was sneaking up on you. It, to me, the feeling was it was spying on this guy. It seemed like it popped in or became visible, and it also didn't know what was going on. That's another thing I liked about the story, yeah. is that it was just a shock, like, what are you? And I would guess, though, if I had to make a bet, it d- does know what humans are, and they're here for a reason, perhaps. Right. But this thing seemed just as shocked, either for two reasons. Either it was transported somewhere without its knowledge or will and ended up somewhere weird like this river, or it was uncloaked and didn't mean to and thought it was invisible. Now, in the Joe story, it was described that this thing was feeding on something, probably fish or something in the river that it was actually eating. And it was being disturbed, and it seemed more natural to me. In the Patrick story, it seemed like a like an intelligent... Well, both are intelligent, but just a different thing. Now, you could, you could say, like, well, humans are intelligent if you don't believe... You know, if you believe you're at the top of the food chain, the apex predator on this earth, right. uh, we're also out in a river collecting food, right? It's not a lowly thing. It's just what us beings do. We're just, again, at the top of the food chain. And here's a, a being, a mantis creature, also doing this, but... The other descriptions seem more bug-like to me. Like he, he said it was feeding on something, had powerful mandibles. That's also scary. Yeah. Uh, it was chomping yeah. on something and it was disturbed. And it was kind of like, well, what, you, what are you, you know, disturbing me in a meal? Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to attack me? By the way, if you look at a close-up of a praying mantis's mouth, yeah. you see also little pincher things. And you right. th- immediately the first thing you think is that the predator guys were like, oh, yeah, that's what we need up around the mouth. Because it's yeah. like there's extra little... Right. Yeah. Because you got a whole, like teeth I said, food is... <laughs> in I don't the... know if they're arms or teeth. I don't know what they are. I know. Well, I mean, you wonder scary about uh, like the angler fish and why it looks so scary. Well, those teeth are long and pointy because food is scarce down where they live. And uh, the theory is that they have, once they get a bite on something, got to hold on to it. Yeah. So that's why they look uh, scary. And uh, they would be if they were eight feet tall, but thankfully they're only the size of a volleyball. Yeah. At the most, uh, they're, they're not all that big. So in fact, I think they're much smaller, probably, uh, you know, four inches. I don't know. You don't know a lot about what's going on in the Marianas Trench, do you? <laughs> None of us do. That's kind of my point is that there's all kinds of strange creatures that are fantastical, but here, you know, not eight feet tall in a river. And I wonder if something about the water, if these are true and connected, that something uncloaked them and they didn't mean to be, is it something to do with the water and something bioelectric or... Right. electromechanical or uh, electromagnetic, something disrupted that, like I said, and you got a flash of orange and suddenly like, zook, and the whirring, yeah. the electrical noise preceded that. And so you do wonder, like, is it malfunctioning? What's going on? But I did like the aspect of, uh, like I said, I give that points for a story of the the thing being just as scared, freaked out and weirded out. And you wonder, is it going to have PTSD in its world for seeing some yeah. scary, freaky pale monkey yeah. with rubber leggings on trying to collect fish in the water. Also, the, the the running thread is that there is a sentience here. Again, it's not like looking at a bug and running up your arm where you, you say, well, bug, that was a poor choice. <laughs> and I yeah. could freak out and smash you. It would have been better to fly away. So there's a limited intelligence here, though. What's disturbing is that these things are much more intelligent than we are. Is that your impression then as you're heading towards some thoughts on this? I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm ready to dive in there on that. I think okay. based on what we've shared so far with the listener and where we're at right now in this episode, right. 
I don't think you could categorically make a conclusion that the intelligence that's being demonstrated, <laughs> if you believe any of this at all, yeah. there's got to be a difference between a predatory intelligence that's rooted in something similar to the sentience that mankind has, mm-hmm. or a predatory intelligence that's just rooted in being a predator. Right. And knowing how to play with your prey and defend yourself and survive as opposed to sit down with you and solve a calculus equation, <laughs> you know? And right, that's what gets right. down to this whole thing about, like, if you, again, believe in any of this at all, if you think about mm-hmm. these things, it's like, well, are these insects, are they interdimensional or whatever, or they are they some, bio, like you said, an undiscovered yeah. cryptid, like you say about Bigfoot, undiscovered, some folks that think, oh, Right, well, I'm just, just expressing a- the very general beliefs of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy where they think there's nothing mystical about it. It's just, look, it's an animal. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a very intelligent animal, but it is right. maybe that kind of missing link between us and uh, the other apes in the ape family that we know. And that's my point, by the way. That could be what's going on here. I want to get more into that in our conclusions, but like the bottom line is this. First of all, having mm-hmm. played around with praying mantises my whole life as a kid and all of that kind of stuff, right. there's something very disarming about them in general because of the shape of their heads. It's one of the few insects that when you hold it in your hand and you look at it and you move, its head turns, it follows you. Its eyes follow you, but you feel like, oh, it's your, I guess you're anthropomorphizing it a little bit. Oh, look, he's looking at me. Isn't that cute? And it's like, okay, so now you said that with the, with the wolf spider. With the one that like, don't 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 Oh, wolf spiders are so cute though. And they raise their arms up. No, they're they're the brightest poisonous. No, but I, I guess what I'm saying, no, I admire their chutzpah. I'm just saying I, I that, get you. But if you encounter anything as a human being, very rarely do we encounter a predator in our daily lives and modern life here mm-hmm. that's bigger than we are and that's intelligent. And that feeling, you know, I can't say, I'm sure big game hunters have had that feeling or whatever. Oh, if yeah. you're on safari and a bull elephant decides to charge the tiny Land Rover you're in or whatever, you're going to get that feel, the fight or flight feeling, the whatever. So if you encounter this thing, whatever, it's not something that should exist or whatever, but it's bigger right. than you and it seems intelligent, it's going to give you a feeling you've never had before because oh, you're yeah. in a danger that you weren't expecting while you were fly fishing. You're in, in New Jersey. <laughs> right, so you weren't, right. you weren't ready for that. You went out, you're trying to chill, trying to relax, get some spiritual time, a river <laughs> runs through it, all that stuff. Suddenly yeah. there's a giant eight-foot bug and it looks yeah. a lot like a bug that would be real good at attacking you if it wanted to be. Yeah, and you know what, not every, uh, like I said, I I love anecdotes like that. My good friend, a very good friend of mine, nobody believed her, but uh, this was seeing the Jughead animal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the the creature with a roundish (laughs) cheese wheel head of sorts, more like a jug, then that's the way, the best she could describe it then. And of course, nobody believed her, but uh, it was so vivid. Like I said, it makes an impression on you. If you go on a limb and you believe these folks exactly as they're describing it. There's a lot of this encounter, this testimony that is an internal feeling, right? It is ineffable. It's hard to describe. It's, I wrote down my, my three I words here. I like to bring up uh, inscrutable, hard to follow up on investigate and inimitable. It's not anything like anyone else uh, has experienced generally, except there's a few people who've experienced this mantis thing. Speaking of Jim Harold at the top of the show, he's heard so many stories, and especially with his Campfire series. Ones, though, that stuck with me is the description of these kids playing in their backyard. And I think it was, it was like three kids, you know, like two boys and a girl or, you know, their cousins or friends. 
you know, I think they're playing catch or playing frisbee, and suddenly into the backyard flies this honeybee that is the size of a Chiwini dog. It, it's it's massive. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, and it doesn't startle them. But the way I always remember the description and the kids were like, whoa, you know, they're just, they're watching this thing and they didn't fear it. I mean, imagine getting stung by that thing. Then it's like yeah. uh, Stephen King's uh, The Mist, right? <laughs> the giant yeah. purple hornets and uh, horrible things coming in from another dimension is that this thing flew around in a circle. It was just kind of like eye, eyeballing them and flown around, but they felt perfectly fine. It's like, they were just in awe, like, wow, look at that thing. And just, are you seeing this? And it's just a giant bumblebee that is impossibly large, you know, like not, right. nothing that's real. But they all saw it all together, and then it just flew off, and they're like, that was pretty amazing, you know, but they didn't right. they didn't have any fear. There was, a, like I said, the, the, the one guy's expression was not that this thing was evil, but that it was startled. But here's the thing is that, like you said, it has that innate power. You don't want to mess with it because you don't, you know, what is, if it gets tired of fish, is it going to like gnaw its my head off? You know, like a, right. like a real praying mantis because now I'm prey sized. And then you wonder about the exoskeleton and, uh, you know, it, it sounds like creatures from District 9. Remember that uh, yeah. groundbreaking yeah. movie where they're, they, yes. they call them the prawns? Yes. Yeah, in South Africa. You know, a different kind of uh, being, but you wonder like this thing, again, if you, scale up the size of an insect to six, seven feet tall, they would be incredibly strong. Yeah. And yeah. Fearful. But like this thing I said, what I love about these stories is that they just seem shocked. But the other thing though, that to me is the the scariest aspect of this is the telepathic powers. Because I said, uh, as I said, well, was it two hours now? I've been flapping my gums. In the Alan Watts scenario where one day we're all a telepathic peoples on this planet is that you have to be okay with everybody knowing your secrets because you know everybody else's. And so, like I said, that's the, the taunt. You know, it's like, well, that's just the way it is and nothing's really, your idea of what's embarrassing goes away. Right. You're all doing right. the same things. You're all doing the same embarrassing things. You all have the same secrets and everybody just knows it. And it's a sea change about how we just perceive ourselves and others in a society. And so now you have this creature that can totally read you in a millisecond and you can't read it. And there is the imbalance of power. And that's frightening to me. Hello everyone, I'm Steve Carefit, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, well, there's only two more things I want to share from Lon Strickler's site. Uh, yeah. the, the, all these ones so far in this one are all on one page, and then there's a link to another one that was more recent. I want to plug Lon's Instagram account. He's got great posts. Oh, yes. Uh, they're yeah, just fun, quick reads. And yeah. same thing with all of our guests. They Go check them out on Instagram. I throw them at Scott annoyingly probably too many. It's like, check this out, <laughs> check this out, check this out, check this out. Uh, but they're little great snippets of stories, and we have one of as well. We've got uh, Tess does uh, Warped Wednesdays and a lot yes, of great features yes. throughout the week, but uh, all these folks do. So uh, support all of us and go check everybody else's out. But uh, but Lon has great cryptid ones, and they're they're getting creepier. The website, again, folks, is phantomsandmonsters.com, and his name yeah. is Lon, L-O-N, Strickler, S-T-R-I-C-K-L-E-R. Well, listen to this email. Uh, this is a message he got in 2009. Hello, the night before last at approximately 8.30 p.m., I was watching television in my living room near a window. I felt like someone or something was watching me. I glanced to my right, and there was a being in a gray suit standing outside my window watching me. 
It had to be seven feet tall or so. I measured in the morning. I had been discussing this feeling of being observed while watching television with a friend just the day before. I know it was not a human, but someone mm. or something entirely different. This being was only there for a second or two and fled the instant I had noticed it. So I only got a fleeting glimpse of it, but I saw that it was dressed in gray and had a large head that I describe as that of a praying mantis. I was not fearful, sensing a feeling of calm, almost protected. As I have not been able to go out and watch the stars for nearly two weeks, it could not have been a reflection of any kind and not a reflection from my TV either. Any thoughts on what it was? Thanks from Florida. So uh, Lon doesn't mm. answer that, at least not online here. But again, we're getting somebody describing a praying mantis head. And yeah. that's another thing, you know, it's the humanoid praying mantis thing. And I always think about when we had Micah on and he talked about the history of Bigfoot, yeah. early, early yeah. history. And the idea that it doesn't just go back to when we first started using the word Bigfoot. We have to think right. about all the names and labels and the semantics that other cultures would have used before that word was invented. Man of the forest or... yeah. Words of respect from indigenous cultures because, again, they knew not to mess with it. They gave them their space, but they've always right. known about them. And, of course, uh, you know, Europeans come in and, like, well, what are these crazy stories? And they don't believe any of it until, like everything else, you encounter your own. Right. And then it's very uh, hyper-localized to that individual, like, well, oh, crazy old Jack there. He saw one, uh, you know, he's got rabbit fever or something. He's, he's right. seeing big hairy ape men. But I would say the indigenous peoples, like the Yowie in Australia or whatever, like they they come to accept it. It's not that crazy to them because they've been seeing it for generations, hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Uh, who knows? And they've just like, yeah, we give them the space, we respect them, and they hopefully leave us alone. <laughs> like you know, and, like again, as being part of your ecosystem, there you have to uh, go along to get along. Yeah, and, and for folks who are interested in that discussion, that was episode 212 of our show from July of 2021. It's called Sasquatch, The Search for Manlike Monsters in History. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where Micah Hanks came on and schooled us on that. That's and right. It's, it's that's a fascinating right. discussion. But yes, and to your point, Forrest, in that episode, sometimes we do these episodes and or we talk to somebody or we do a certain interview and yeah. it changes my perspective yeah. permanently. It sticks with me. And that's one of the things that I think about. And it's the thing that I'm thinking about here. Everybody's saying mantis. What kind of word is it? Because other folks were like, well, it's not really fully an insect. It's humanoid, but they couldn't make out the limbs. And it, it sounds to me like if it was in varying states of camouflage yeah. or it's shimmering in and out of visibility, whether that's existence or not, or just visibility, then yeah, it's hard to describe. Right. And that's something people already are just like, well, then it's if you can't see it, then it's not real. Well, we got to get past that idea because, <laughs> I mean, if you just imagine if and for folks who don't know what the cuttlefish is, it's basically an octopus, but it is unbelievable at camouflaging itself. Wherever it goes, yeah. it can disappear. You've seen these videos, trust me, on YouTube or whatever. Everybody's TikToking all day long. Yeah. This thing, it just parks itself down on any color coral. It could be a piece of trash. It could be whatever, tire, and it disappears into it. Yeah. And if that can happen, then that can happen. That's a natural creature on, that's not an alien. That's a right. natural creature on this planet that can do that. Okay, so there's two concepts here. One, I, I think is a good distinction, and maybe employing both is, like I said, the natural bugs, the stick bug, uh, the praying mantis itself, right. octopi, they're not disappearing. It's an illusion, but they're still there. You just, they blend it in. If you've ever been snorkeling, and I had the good fortune to uh, uh, be in Hawaii long, many years ago, 
and I had a day of snorkeling and I got one of those little, the Instamatic camera that's yes. in the plastic case, right? And it's very convenient. You take your, uh, your photos and then you just turn the whole thing in and you get your photos back. And, uh, I'd never seen underwater sea creatures like that. You don't see right. that in California that much unless you're way off and probably uh, scuba diving here right. in Hawaii. Like they're just right there. Like there's a turtle. It's four feet away. It's looking at me. Right. Uh, and so I saw this really cool, uh, small uh, octopus. It's like, oh my God. I got, and I'm staring right at it. I mean, I'm right, not directly over, but just like, like two feet away. Like I said, off, off center, it's like, I'm getting the camera out. I'm keeping my eye on it. Cause I know it'll, uh, it'll try and hide. And I'm still looking at it. And here's the weird thing. It curls up into a ball and it looks like all the other rocks around. And I visually could not see it again. And right. I, mean, I was staring right at it. It's like, right. cause I know like, okay, don't take your eyes away. Cause you'll, you won't get it. And then it's like, well, I can take a photo. And I took a photo and it just looks like a bunch of rocks. You know, right. Like and the like, well, <laughs> hey, look at the octopus. And people are like, I don't see anything. Right. So the right. other case though, we're talking about technology. And that is different. I think when you have the predator scenario, something that's cloaked, I do wonder if, if it is technology, if there's something about the water that's throwing it off. Right. Same thing, like like I said, it can be it can be foiled, uh, like in the movie Predator. Remember when they they cover themselves with mud so it can get a heat signature. Yep. And yep. then uh, once you had it in a net, you can kind of get around these things. Again, it's not perfect. That's the other thing about if you believe in alien abduction lore, they're not perfect. They screw yeah. up. There's things they don't care about, like putting your socks and shoes back on correctly or your dress or whatever. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's yeah, close exactly. enough. Uh, yeah. Or just like, just dump the guy there. Come on, we got to go. It's yeah. like, they're not perfect creatures and they screw things up. And here's the other thing that's kind of disturbing to me is that if these things are real, they don't think like you do. We've been talking about this aspect for a long time. People say like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, you're going to apply your rationale to whatever this thing is, this yeah. bug. It's like what Jeff Goldblum says in The Fly. You know, he's fully transforming. He's giving it that speech. He's like, you know, I could be the first insect politician. Because we need representation. He's not a human anymore. He's something right. in the middle. He's a fly man, man yeah. fly. He's not thinking Brundle like Brundlefly. Exactly. He's a new thing. And he has different motivations, different reasoning. And you're not going to understand because you're not an insect. And right. uh, you, you don't have any interest in eating garbage. Where he's like, no, no, it's got to be garbage for everybody. There's a <laughs> candy bar and a pile of rotting fruit in every pot. So what I'm saying is that they don't think like us, and that to me is is disturbing because then you cannot really understand them and they can't understand you. Although there are primal things like fear, surprise. That is right. one thing that, again, to bring it back to, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, just a little bit more about Terry Lovelace. I think there's that has the most significant and uh, disturbing but meaningful connections to me as far as the descriptions and what the motivations, what's going on here. We need to know what's going on here as much as we can. And when Terry describes, he locked eyes with whatever this creature was, was the commander, right? Is the, the captain of the ship, literally perhaps something that's in charge, different from the other beings. And when it looked at him, because as Terry described it, for whatever reason, his head was frozen. His body was frozen as were everyone else, but he could move his eyes and he looked over and I think he wasn't supposed to do that. Like I said, these things aren't perfect. Again, for people that are, don't know all the AL canon, right. this is, uh, we're talking about Terry Lovelace, who yes. uh, has been on our show a few times, but initially uh, was to tell an abduction story 
and that we referenced earlier. We were talking about him and his friend Terry, and that was in Abduction at Devil's Den. Uh, yes. Uh, if you uh, go back through our back catalog. One of the most terrifying episodes we've done, uh, as people have reported to us. Yeah, that, and that was back in October of 2019. That was episode 155, if anybody right. was looking for it. Yeah. If you take the abduction phenomenon at face value here, as and some of the elements being real, is that what people report is that, yeah, they try and implant memories, try to make you forget stuff, but it doesn't work. Memories still bleed through. You still have PTSD. You're still scared of, the story was of mannequins, or you see the book cover for communion, and it freaks you out. They're not perfect at it. It's close enough, and that's all they care about because they don't really care about your feelings. They don't really care. You know, why are you screaming? I don't know. Just stop it. You're annoying us. And when Terry, and again, I think he wasn't supposed to, believe me the story, he wasn't supposed to be able to move his eyes. He was supposed to be in a somnambulistic state. He looks over at this thing. This thing locks eyes with him, and it knows. It's like, oh, you're awake, eh? And like that, he's downloaded all of Terry into his bug brain, like I said, just info suck, download this, everything that you are, every hope, every fear, every secret you have, every interaction, your entire life. And it also, like a computer or chat GPT, processed it in a second and knew what you're totally about. Now, here's the thing. It may not understand you as a human being or care and I asked Terry, what sense did you get from that thing? Were you, was it an exchange of like, you know, like I said, now I know, or again, another movie reference, folks, Bill Pullman in Independence Day, where he knew what their plans were, was just, you know, they're a parasitic civilization. They're here to suck the earth dry and move on. I remember him saying, if I was correct about this, and it may be in the interview, is that he, he just, it was just indifference. It mm-hmm. just didn't, I don't care about you. We've got a mission to do here. I don't care about you as a person. When we're done with you, we'll dump you back. But it did not care. It wasn't fear. It wasn't anger. It wasn't like, oh, you can see, ooh, uh, how scary. We got to deal with you. Or let me show you our secrets now, as uh, Richard Dreyfus uh, gets to experience. It was just like, get back in line. Well, that brings me to another story here that I want to share. And this one, I'm going to the source on this. This was posted on Lon Strickler's site. The source here, when you, in full disclosure, is the Daily Star in the mm. UK, which I know everybody's <laughs> like, well, you just might as well be reading from the Inquirer. And I know we might as well. Well, hey, but, listen, are the facts the facts? Are they are they the same? Regardless, you know, d- listen, pay attention, as I say, to the messenger. It's a consideration. But the bigger consideration is the data. What's being right. said here? Well, this is an interesting story. This was published in uh, ja- on January 30th of 2021. The byline is uh, by Bernie Torre, or Tor, T-O-R-R-E. So this is just this recently, in 2021, mm-hmm. all right? So we, a cyclist says he fled from an evil, in quotes, seven-foot-tall telepathic alien mantis and has drawn a picture of the bizarre creature, which I'm looking at right now. We'll have a link to this. Paul Froggett, 26, likened his terrifying ordeal to a spider eating a fly on a David Attenborough documentary. The shaggy-haired warehouse worker insisted he was not on booze or drugs as he shared his sketch of the E.T. with the Daily Star. He told of how he fled after stumbling across the creature as he cycled home through woodland in Warwick. Again, uh, we're across the pond here. Mm. Paul said, It sounds crazy, but I felt I could sense its feelings towards me, and it was just like pure alien hatred. Mm, mm-hmm. You know when you're watching a David Attenborough documentary and you see a spider eating a fly and just a malevolent sense of evil? 
And then he's got this sketch that he drew that's a pretty good sketch. And it is bipedal, but it does have insect legs. He said he was forced to quit his job after skeptical colleagues dubbed him the Mantis Man of Warwick. Paul added he had been left traumatized and now struggles to sleep after cycling through Oakwood and Blacklow Spinney shortly after finishing a 12-hour shift at a dog food warehouse on July 16th last year. He said, On a Thursday morning at 5 a.m., I was cycling home from work and I saw something odd in the sky. It was a glowing orange sphere just hovering on the horizon. At first, I thought it must be Venus or a satellite, but it seemed to be much closer than either of those things. I'm going to add, by the way, there's a picture of this, Mm. and it's pretty clear what it is. And it wouldn't be hard to fake, but it is... right. The object is there, and um, the sun, you can see the sun coming up, and the reflection of the sun lines up with this object in the sky. Uh, again, those are super easy things to do in Photoshop and After Effects, but it's. I thought the image was going to say stock footage or something in this article, yeah. but it says image Paul Froggett. That's the guy, so I think he took this picture of this thing he saw. Um. All right, so again, I stopped on my way to take some photos. The object looked a fair bit bigger in person than visible in the photos. Mm -hmm. This is when the object started to move around and rotate in shape. I could see it was circular with a part sticking out from the main body. When this started, I got the chills down my back and felt like there was something wrong here. I hurried on my way home. Mm. As I kept cycling, I could swear the object was moving along my course, but I just told myself it must be some kind of optical illusion. I entered a wooded area and lost sight of the object through the trees. Usually at this time of morning, there is a chorus of birdsong and insects, but the woods were dead silent. Uh Uh-huh. He continued, as I cycled down the path, I came around a bend. I saw something I will never forget. Standing a few meters ahead is what I can only describe as a humanoid praying mantis. This thing was at least seven foot tall, light green with triangular head and big oval black eyes. It had all the features of a mantis, but stood on two legs and had a somehow human-like shape about it. I was completely frozen with fear, for what felt like an age, but was probably only seconds. I stared into this creature's eyes, and it stared back. I felt it could read my mind, and I could read its. My fear was replaced with completely alien thoughts of utter hatred and evil I felt projected from this thing. Mm. I suddenly snapped out of this hypnotic kind of state, and it made a step back as if it was going to pounce on me. That's where that article ends, by the way. But you can see the pictures he took. You can see an object in the sky pretty clearly. Everyone's like, where are the sharp pictures? These ones are pretty sharp. And then you can see another one where it's further up. And it would look like Venus or something, but the sun's coming up, so I would have to do a little math and astronomy there to see if that's what he would have seen from there. But um, the thing that's closer, definitely not a star. It's either a fake or it's uh, something indescribable. And then he draws this mantis. But the, my, the thing to me, it's... Of course, he could be familiar with all these instances that are happening over here, sure. but there's a lot of details. He's talking about the mind reading. He's talking about the feeling he's getting. He's talking about fear. He's talking about the silence in the forest. Yep. And yeah. on his way home. And when you think about somebody like this, if you believe any of this at all, I'm sure yeah. folks are just like, what are you talking about? But like, if, you, <laughs> if, you, if a guy yeah. has a story like this, who is going to publish it? Uh, nobody. So then it winds up in well, the, yeah. somebody like the Daily Star who publishes it. And it's immediately labeled. Yeah. But if he had gone to, you know, the New York Times or, you know, whatever equivalent, the BBC, they might have said, yeah, we're not good. What are you talking about? Go away. Go away. You bother me, kid. So it's, (laughs) what are you going to do? I don't know. 
But there's a lot of common ground there with the nature right. of his experience and the other ones we were reading about, which I thought was interesting. So I see why Lon picked it out. Yeah, no, and in this description, and again, the guy was a, a good enough uh, drafts person to sketch out, and this is very bug-like, okay? This is more traditional yeah. uh, bug-like. But again, instead of, uh, what's the man has got? Four legs? I can't remember, there's six legs. It's got six. It's got the four yeah, in the back right. that are like... Like a table, like the four legs yeah, on, a, like on, a, a table. on a small end table. And then the two arms up front for the... Right. These are very yeah. much, uh, they got the spiky, spindly arms of the mantis, and, but the two legs here. So uh, you wonder, is this some kind of variation? But everything it tracks with these other stories. And to boot, he's got some pretty good uh, orbs, orb photos that are as good as you see on anything on UFO Twitter these days. Right. Uh, some kind of shiny thing. And in fact, if uh, the Pentagon released this as uh, the Reaper drone footage, it's like, yeah, that seems about right. You know, yeah. it, it's nothing too yeah. outlandish, but uh, but these are pretty good. So all together, we're judging these for a TV show. I say uh, pretty good offering here. Yeah. There's a lot of things that uh, that are the same. And you wonder then about, this is not uncommon as well, people getting a sense of uh, hatred, of anger, yeah. uh, of something yeah. towards you. And you don't know, like, I didn't do anything. Like, what are you, are you just upset at human beings? I can understand that <laughs> if you've been yeah. watching anything. Uh, for the last, uh, well, just since the beginning, <laughs> you could be unimpressed and angry at us just of like, oh, you people, you just, you're awful. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. just as yeah. soon as we can end all this, uh, our culture is going to do it, uh, which is scary. But people do get a sense. Like I said, that's part of the experience. And I know people have, have uh, laughed at me personally, just, just in the emails and responses we've got when I've asked people like, did you get a sense of... A sex, male, female, anger, hatred, neutrality. Uh, I always ask people that because they generally do. When you, they, again, right. it could be any kind of encounter. It's just like, uh, and sometimes it's nothing. It's like, no, no, I just, it didn't seem all that weird. Like I said, uh, maybe like the UFO encounter that's also described by Patrick in Ryan Sprague's Somewhere in the Skies uh, in that same episode. Uh, this is a story yes. that's prior to the Orb in the Woods story that we we just relayed. Uh, oh, yeah, and the, the Mantis Man. One. Yes, the, the yeah. Northwestern Montana story. The guy that they were with, who's uh, uh, quite a character, when he essentially kind of led them to a massive UFO sighting, he seemed kind of bored. Like, right. He's like, oh, I've seen a bunch of these. And they were, they were so blown away, they fell backwards in the snow weeping because it's just like, whoa, it just blows your mind about, about reality. Whereas yeah. this guy's like, yeah, usually these things are traveling in groups of four or five, but uh, this one seems to be a solo. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. And uh, it's just your, your perception. And uh, most people, again, I think, depending on your mindset, some people just are not wired for this. And it totally unhinges them and they it ruins their lives. And so you got to be careful. I don't think you know what you are until it happens to you. Because like I said, there is a inherent feeling down to your core that happens with all of these, uh, or, or with most of these encounters, many of them. And you don't know what it is until it happens to you. And you think you go, uh, it's like the guys who, uh, <laughs> there's a handful of stories of people that wanted to go on to Skinwalker Ranch. And one guy was like, I'm going to meditate and commune with the, uh, with the, with the vibes here. Goes yeah. out there, takes off all his clothes. Five minutes later, he's running, screaming out of the place. Yeah. Because he thought this was something else. This is not a yoga retreat. Yeah. There's something weird here and it can mess with your mind. So I don't know what we have here, but but to your point about photos and who's accepting them and how they're presented currently in our modern day here, I think it depends on how old it is 
and what publication is doing the presenting. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. There was another forum that was really prominent on this. And I, actually, I think this forum was kind of the center uh, or the nexus point for this story or these stories going viral and Lon Strickler getting mm. interested. Also, the production company getting interested from uh, Monsters and Mysteries in America right. because all of the comments are on this forum. This is back from 2011 and 12. You can see everything unfolding in this uh, yeah. comment thread. I want to just read this entry. This is from Hackettstownlife.com. And uh, the the headline says, Mantis Man sighting on the Mekong, that's M apostrophe C-O-N-G, mm-hmm. and then it's uh, ellipses, and then it says, this is no joke. This is what the person posted. I like a good story like anyone else, but my friend told me a story today that was so profound that I felt the need to share it with the rest of the town. Now, Hackettstown, by the way, is right there. That's right where this is at. Mm-hmm. It's just like 10 minutes outside of town to get to this location. This friend of mine who told me this story is a very successful businessman. Deep into our conversation today, he started tearing up uncontrollably and told me he had something to get off his chest that had been eating at him for some time. I hope you're ready for this because I wasn't. Apparently about a year ago, my friend and his brother were down at Stevens State Park fishing right around dusk. During this time, while his brother was roughly 50 yards downstream fishing, he said he felt this strange vibration in his right ear, and from that he turned and looked to the right. When he turned and looked to the right, he said he saw this six to seven foot praying mantis looking man just standing there and unable to believe that he could see him. He said the creature was black and gray. And to be quite honest, the way my buddy was telling this story, I was having a tough time. I know he saw this thing because I could see it in his face. Anyhow, we Googled praying mantis man on Muscanet Kong right after that. And it turns out my friend is not alone. I can't even emphasize enough how bad my friend was crying today over what he saw. So that link that he puts, that's Lon Strickler's link about Mm -hmm. pre-existing stories dated from July of 2011. And then you start to get all these comments. This is up there with Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and other folks who are, of course, incredulous, like comments on anything. This must have been a slow day at work. You know, (laughs) local business owners are going to do great once this gets out. So there's that whole thing. But then as the thread continues to go... You see the producers getting interested, Long Strickler getting interested in having more information. And there's another comment from the original poster from the OP. He wrote, coincidentally, I just happened to run into the teller of this story as I speak while out to dinner with my wife. I told him that I posted his tale on the local forum. After freaking out, he saw how some people actually believe him. Now, when it comes to something like this, I would never denigrate either of our credibility, but I just had him tell me the story again. And if he's not telling the truth, he certainly believes he is. Needless to say, and incidentally, he's freaked me out all over again. He actually just admitted that he wet himself during these three brief seconds and he sat down in the water so his brother didn't think he had crapped his pants. I'm happy some of you take this to heart because on the karma which I live by, whether this guy saw this being or not, he is telling the truth, a truth he believes wholeheartedly. So it just keeps going. Comments are positive and negative. It comes back and forth. Mm-hmm. Some people are, of course, it, it was a blue heron at dusk. <laughs> That's your deep dive on that. Yeah. It was well, a blue heron at dusk. Sandy H. Um, Crane. Yeah. So the, the comments keep coming in. Lon gets in there and he's like, look, I would like to talk to any witnesses. Another guy's like, I'm a producer for Monsters and Mysteries. I would like to talk to some witnesses. And then uh, the last post from the OP that I would like to share said this, I have to admit, I do feel a little strange about sharing this story from yesterday. Honestly, I've been trying to talk myself out of believing this friend of mine told me and how worked up he got over it. Please know I didn't do this to spin a yarn that would take on a life of its own, or am I trying to make a story out of this or anything of the sort? The only reason I shared it was because after hearing this wild tale, I googled it and found Lon's article, which pretty much floored my friend and pretty much knocked him out of his chair. 
There were just a few eerie similarities, and the fact that the other story he's referring to took place on the Muskie just made it all the more bizarre. I keep trying to envision whatever it is that this friend of mine saw. To be truthful, one second I find it to be silly rubbish, and the next second, when I close my eyes and really envision what he outlined for me, I find it remarkably unnerving. As always, people believe what they want to believe, and I'm still not quite sure if I really believe this, but just to reiterate, this friend of mine was downright spooked. And the fact that he admitted the embarrassing fact that he wet himself upon seeing this and all the tears mixed into yesterday's tale, he must have seen something, whatever it was. So here's what I think is interesting about this. Now here, the person that he's talking about here, I think is referred to as Mark in the one story. It's hard to keep track because people are using pseudonyms. Right. I think it's Mark in the one story. It's definitely the guy who is Joe. Joe Parenti. And uh, And let's make this clarification now is that he had an uncontrolled release of number one not number two. Well, no, he said in, in Monsters and Did Mysteries, he? I think he said number two. I think okay. he, he basically said all of his functions, which well, generally for sure. me, I think is, <laughs> let's not get into that. But anyway, no, no, no. I, Nothing but makes a he, difference. Was, he didn't yeah. seem like, he's right. like, no, this is what happened. I mean, that's how scared I was. And I'm just saying, when you watch him tell it on Monsters and Mysteries, yeah. we've seen a lot of stuff. We've learned a little bit about the tells from lying and people not telling. This guy definitely believes what he's talking about. When you see him, you just know it. Right. It's like our friend Gled says that uh, just retired from Scotland Yard. He knows how to look for that stuff. He actually uh, took courses on lying, or was he teaching the courses? I can't remember. Eventually uh, teaching, but it, yeah, and it has several different names uh, it can go by. Bass is one, B-A-S-S. Yes. Interesting ticks that people do uncontrollably, subconsciously, like one, is that if you see them like tapping their foot, right, or they're, sh- they're bouncing their leg. Yes. Sometimes that will correspond to an increased heart rate, which means they're probably trying to hide a lie. There's little things yeah. that you can tell, but now they have different techniques. Uh, what was the other one? Oh, somebody who's retiring from the system that I think it's a lot like the Voight comp test from Blade Runner, where yes. it, it analyzes yeah. your uh, iris and pupil dilation and uh, uh, uncontrolled yeah. responses just from your eyes, I believe. That's fascinating because the other thing, and I think we mentioned on the show before too, and because I had asked Glad about this, is that had somebody had come out with a very simple way to defeat a, a lie detector. Mm-hmm. And the method was to essentially, while you're talking, it is to flex the muscle in your sphincter. Well, over there, and over. There is a so, and I yeah, mentioned that a, glad, there's a and sensor, he said now there's yeah. sensors in the cushions that look out for that. So right, if you're going to do right. that, you're also going to have to suspend your butt, I guess, over the seat. There's a lot of debate on it. It is not admissible in court because, of course, it can be beaten. You can get false positives, of course, like everything else. But a lot of people still will look to that. The old-fashioned lie detector which was a galvanic skin response and all that kind of stuff, because it gives you a baseline. Like you said, people, they don't have anything to cling to for believability. So it's like, you can use that to your defense. Like, well, he passed a lie detector test. It's like, yeah, okay, well, that's something. Or they failed a lie detector test, and that immediately, again, that's just preconceived notions. And what you see here is that you didn't see anything. You saw a big old crane that was in the water five feet away from you, and you just didn't realize it was a big crane. It was scary. You've been fishing your whole life, and you can't tell what a bird looks like. But here's the thing is that these other uh, sightings, and, of course, it, it goes for any cryptid, Obviously, there are mistaken identities with all kinds of creatures, but when it's this close, that personal and multiple witnesses, like I said, in the Patrick story, the brother was right there and saw it too. Now, again, you can, yeah. you have to go with a little bit of this if you're just going to analyze it and not dismiss it outright. We don't know those brothers, but you know, again, that uh, shared experience resulted in the brother 
having PTSD for the rest of his life and, and being estranged from his brother and wouldn't talk about it. And again, that fits the pattern of all these other stories, which uh, is either just an ongoing writerly trope that everybody who publishes these stories manages to conjure up. The sibling, they never talked again. They had a, a terrible relationship. That other person had a downworld spiral and a tragic end. And it's just something that everybody puts into these stories, or there's something real to that aspect. Right. And that's what's fascinating. But the other thing I wanted to mention here, and, and now I can't remember which story it was, if it was the uh, the one with the brothers or the other story, they both took place in the same area. Yeah. But one of them said in one of the retellings that, I want to be clear, it didn't have the mantis front, like the praying front arms. No. They didn't say it had humanoid arms, but they're saying it didn't look like that. It didn't no. have like the folded striking arms yeah where it gets its name is that people think it looks like it's praying with its hands together or its appendages it's it's the front appendages insect hands right yeah. but it has uh obviously you need some well if you're going to pilot and captain a spaceship <laughs> unless you're just yeah. the brains and and here's the thing you can develop in several different ways either uh like us monkeys here and uh, you have opposable thumbs and that helps you or you know the other ones debated is the uh, often described aliens with a long slender very flexible uh, gumby fingers and it's like, what, no thumb? I always thought that. What, what do you mean no thumb? That's hard to grab, you know, grab things and manipulate tools and right. buttons and dials. And maybe they don't have, have all that. Maybe a lot of it is then psychic, as uh, Ben Rich uh, hinted at, that the famous quote I mentioned all the time. It's like, uh, you know, people think like, well, it must be, must the manual on reading, you know, how to fly a spaceship must be like several Manhattan telephone books. Or as we just saw in Maverick, it's like yeah. when they remember the manual for the F-18 is, yes. is really thick and you throw it in the trash. You're not going to eat all that. Right. No, high technology advancement, evolutionary advancement, if you want to go there, does not get more complicated. You leap over that stuff. If you can pilot a spacecraft with your mind, as Ben Rich said, is it with ESP? And that's, and he said, that's how they fly or controlled. Then you don't need the years of training in a thick manual and a bunch yeah. of wires and dials and, and electrodes and all that. It works at a totally different principle. But if you're an insect, like how do you grip things? So I was going to say the the often described alien with the four long slender fingers, you know, some people have described little suction cups on the end of that, yeah. on the end of those fingers. Like, well, that's how you grab stuff. And you yeah. know, it's a yeah. different system, totally. We're always trying to apply our human things. Like, well, that doesn't make sense. Right. It's like, we're not talking about humans anymore. You got to get that out of your head. Yeah. You know, you're trying to apply, uh, like you said, the <laughs> comedy rules. For, what was it? The logic police to a comedy sketch. Like, we're outside of that now. This is comedy. Yeah. Different rules apply. But in any case, I mean, these comments are interesting, like I said, and, and it lines up with the responses to everything. You have some believers, you have some people like, well, that can't possibly be true. So this is all baloney. And then people are flocking to the Muskinetgong to go fly fishing because they want to see a eight foot tall, you know, being. And then, yeah, of course, in some towns where it's very prevalent, it's become part of their lore, you do have festivals. And yeah. for a little tiny town, it can bring in uh, visitors, this and that. But like I said, it's a weird thing for someone to start. It's like, this is praying mantis town. Come on, visit. We're going to have a festival. It's like, really? That's not really the same as Mothman days. Or it's not right, really right. the same as... <laughs> <laughs> it's not really the same setup where you have the whole town witnessing something and it becomes a trope. It's kind of hard to start that by yourself, right? Yeah. You're just yeah. a singular guy with your one sighting and you're trying to turn that into uh, a festival days. You know, like Kecksburg or any of these where they have, uh, the town has embraced it and now they it brings in money and a festival and visitors and people go to flock to the little museum. That's not happening here. Right. As far as we know. 
Hi, I'm Heath Bennett, and when I'm not hunting for non-cryptid or cryptid animals, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Let's talk about when praying mantises started. This, this was yeah. an interesting article that, uh, that we found. It's from Earth.com uh, by Richard Pilardi, a staff writer for Earth.com, and we'll have a link to it. I wanted to read some excerpts from here because I thought this was pretty fascinating. One fossil of a possibly early form of mantid, which is the praying mantis family, has been dated to 270 million years ago. And what are clearly mantids appear in Jurassic strata beginning 200 million years ago. They began to diversify into the multitude of species we see today some 60 million years ago. The fossil record, however, is somewhat patchy. What is known is that they belong to the Dictyoptera, a group that also includes the roaches and termites, early forms of which emerged some 300 million years ago during the Carboniferous. The ancient rock art of the Southern African San people, that's S-A-N, depicts half-human, half-mantis creatures, some of them perhaps representing a trickster god analogous to Anansi. Mantises were depicted in the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead as deities, bird flies who led souls to the underworld. Similarly, they appeared in ancient Sumerian texts as a sort of necromancer figure. They merited mention in the idols of the Greek Theocritus, and in fact, mantis is the Greek word for prophet. Mm. These beautiful arthropods also graced the surfaces of Roman coins and fought in arenas like cocks for the amusement of the Chinese. Chinese proverbs are full of references to mantises and their undaunted courage in the face of larger adversaries. Anyone who has seen the remarkable wing displays of threatened mantids can attest to the veracity of this characterization. They certainly don't go quietly into that good night if you make the mistake of picking them up. And I have a video to prove that, uh, <laughs> by the way, which I will post with this show, even though it makes me look like a complete idiot. All right, here's, and here's another section, and I'll be done with this article. Their remarkable compound eyes, which each boast some 9,000 amatidia, allow them to see in three dimensions. These capabilities are bolstered by the presence of three ocelli, or simple one-lensed eyes, on their foreheads. The ocelli are often larger in males and may be totally absent in females for reasons unknown. Their acute vision supplements a remarkable reflex system, which allows them to extend their forelegs and grasp prey in an astounding 50 thousandths of a second. Their strangely humanoid arms are, however, not unique among insects. Raptor-like claws have evolved in at least three other groups of insects, including the mantis pids, the assassin bugs, and some flies, testifying to the efficacy of this mode of prey capture. The rapacious predatory tendencies of the mantises have brought them into the news of late due to their tendency to stake out hummingbird feeders and devour the hapless sprites as they go in for a sip of nectar. By the way, Ooh. there's videos all over the internet of them eating much larger animals, <laughs> like yeah. eating hummingbirds, attacking lizards. They're amazing predators. But the other thing that I thought about with this, when it talks about the 50 thousandths of a second to strike, first of all, that's mm -hmm. how fast that one ran up my arm. Secondly, <laughs> I remember that Radiolab show they did on the mantis shrimp. Oh, yes. Which I don't mm -hmm. know if there's any species relationship there, but it's uh, one of the fastest moving animals in the animal kingdom, if not the fastest, it can strike faster than a bullet is fired, I believe. Well, yeah, pistol shrimp uh, is also another name for it. And, yeah. it. and the weird thing is underwater, 
the movement is so fast, and you, you can probably remind me that uh, they create a plasma bubble, which heats up to like yeah. 5,000 degrees. It's something yeah, just it's amazing, astronomical, which is meant to shock prey, right? So they stun the prey uh, with a quick movement, and it's, I can't remember the term, uh, but basically a uh, the, the explosive action creates a condition that, yeah, will stun a fish and it's, it's kind of zapped. And in that moment, they go after it. Right. But everything, aside from your top apex predators like humans, and in this case, we may be prey for the mantis. Yeah. Or at least uh, <laughs> things to be examined by them. In this case, though, uh, mantis can also be prey and have developed defenses, which have been studied. So in thinking about this, of course, Scott and I started searching for scholarly articles on how insects may have evolved into seven to eight foot tall, sentient, mind reading, psychically probing, spaceship flying, bipedal or multipedal. Well, the spaceship part, that's pure speculation. Okay. <laughs> well, well, we'll see in a minute here, yeah. sir. How does an insect evolve into something that... Uh, Okay, let's take this, because it seems to be the common thing we've heard so much about tonight. Read your mind. Yeah. Now, what we've already discussed is that animals can pick up what you're thinking. You know, there's studies now that say your dog knows what you're thinking. When you say, I love you to your your pet, uh, there are physiological and emotional changes in the pet, because they can they may not understand the word. It's a complex uh, but simple emotion. They certainly feel it. But for humans, of course, love can be a much more complex emotion and they pick up on that that your pets know like horses can understand if you're afraid or you feel uncertain that's why they say you should always uh, present that you are in command otherwise like oh you're not in command well then i'm going to take control and that's what they yeah. say about uh wayward dogs acting up is that hey uh this is a pack family situation here if you're not going to be the, the leader of the pack then uh, i'm just going to go bananas Right. And there's a lot of people who don't know what to do. It's like, well, I want to be nice. I don't want to be, uh, I'm not that kind of person. It's like, well, then they're going to take control. Same thing with children. So in this case, though, with a praying mantis, it is something that also can be eaten. And this paper, I, my point being is that we didn't find many papers, if at all, with our cursory research that pointed <laughs> to the evolution of a bug <laughs> right. into a uh, a sentient, uh, controlling, uh, predatory, uh, the, the scientific being, let's right. say, uh, equal and superior to humans. Right. There you go. But there is one paper here talks about that presentation, which you just mentioned here. And this is uh, from the Royal Society, uh, the platform publishing journal papers. This one's called The Evolution of Startle Displays, a case study in praying mantises. Well, there you go. So they're saying mantises, not manti. I'm going to stand by my manti. But the manti, occupy, <laughs> Stand elvi. by your... Man I, th I like startle. What is it? Startle displays? Yes. Well, here's, here's what the abstract down, says. Like and this paper's by uh, Marta Vidal-Garcia, James C. O'Hanlon, Gavin J. Stevenson, and Kate Deal Umbers from 2020. So it's fairly recent. Anti-predator defenses are typically regarded as relatively static signals that conceal prey or advertise their unprofitability. So it's either, uh, what they're saying here is I'm trying maybe to explain as we go along is that anti-predator defenses. So it's a, something being afraid of, of being eaten. You usually thought of as being um, not immobile, just like a, a stance that either disguises you, hides you, or signals to the predator that like, you don't want to eat me, dude. It's going to be a bad lunch for you. <laughs> so right, I'm poisonous, right. I'm toxic, I'm going to taste bad, you're going to get killed yourself, just stay away. That's what, that's what they mean by unprofitability. 
He goes on to say, uh, however, startle displays, which is what the mantis displays, are complex performances that deter or confuse predators and can include a spectacular array of movements, colors, and sounds. Yet yeah. we do not fully understand the mechanisms by which they function, their evolutionary correlates, or the conditions under which they are performed and evolved. So here we present, to our knowledge, the first phylogenetically controlled comparative analyses of startle displays including behavioral data using praying mantises as a model system. So what they're doing is that what they're saying is that the praying mantis has a, you could say somewhat unique set of startle defenses, mm -hmm. which, uh, and the reason this is relevant, I believe, not only because of your evolutionary, uh, your intro here, is that what we're seeing with all these cases, this thing was just as startled to see the human as the human right. was to see them. They're like, right. what the, what the, what are you? Yeah. Either you're not supposed to see me and yeah. my suit's malfunctioning, I gotta take it back to the shop. Right. The water's making it malfunction. Or I was just minding my own bug business in the river trying to catch fish. And then here you pop up into my purview. And now I'm just as freaked out. Yeah. And then they both have an ignominious uh, departing of each other. So it's a startle display and a startle response, perhaps by both. So the paper goes on to say about the background, because they are a matter of life or death, anti-predator defenses have long captured human attention and emergent research has provided a deep insight into the underlying evolutionary processes. Number one, concealment through camouflage strategies such as crypsis and masquerade. So that's like your stick bug, what we're talking about, blending in like the octopus. And they help prey to avoid detection and identification by predators. Uh, whereas this is the other type, opossumatism, I think I'm saying that right. Advertisement of unprofitability, as we just said, toxicity or weaponry. So I'm going to be toxic or I got some bad uh, kung fu moves I'm going to put on you and you're not going to like it. Yeah. Typically provides protection by predator learned avoidance. So the predator comes to learn like, oh yeah, no, you, it, your weird looking black and white thing, or the coloring is like a frog, very brightly colored. So the bird knows to avoid it. Those things are typical and displayed by mantises. So anyway, to wrap up that uh, paper's findings, and again, it's fascinating, it's very detailed, and it just kind of compares startle displays from the mantises with uh, other bugs and other creatures that rely on this to survive in their world. And of course, if you're talking about a, an advanced being like humans, because some humans think that they are the be-all, end-all of everything in the universe, well, all of us, no matter how smart we are, how tough, all get startled all can lose our bodily functions in an extreme moment. You can't help it because that's a physiological response, which is uh, specific to our nature, let's say. And, uh, right. and when you're presented with a really far out <laughs> encounter, you don't know what you're going to do till it happens to you. And you don't know how you're going to react until afterwards. So the discussion here at the end of the paper just says, startle displays are spectacular performances to deter or confuse predators which can greatly increase biological fitness. So a startle display ensures your survivability as a species. The study provides, to our knowledge, the first comprehensive picture of the evolution of startle displays and their components in a phylogenetic framework. So basically it just goes on. It's a very comprehensive study and, uh, you know, correlations between body size of the insect, uh, species, just the different signals in display presence, all that stuff. Going back to tying this in, remember that the one description, the guy said it, it kind of spread out its wings. He thought it had wings. Yes. Yeah. And it showed, it puffed out its chest a little bit. 
Right. And that again, it's just like, don't mess with me. I don't know what you are. Don't, I got, I got big wings. I got pictures. Yeah. And again, that sounds like a lot of animals when they get startled, of course, just puff up and they, cause they don't know what you are. They don't, they have to assess the threat in a matter of seconds. And it's not like this thing was waiting and lying in wait, ready to attack. Right. It just would have pounced on him and chewed his head off. Right. This thing was also startled and had a display of like making itself look bigger, even though it was the larger creature. So I'm talking about a perhaps universal response that is evolutionarily generated here by all creatures, no matter where you are in the universe, maybe, or it could be completely different. Now, going off that idea, a couple of other articles I found, and this is really fascinating specifically to the mantis, because now we're talking about things we do know about mantis creatures <laughs> as right. bugs. I found this fascinating just from a uh, academic and sociological standpoint in that if you have a creature like the praying mantis, it is suitable or usable by both sides to argue for the evidence of evolution and for the evidence of creationism. Oh, right. And if right. you can capture both sides, like we hope to do, Scott, is uh, confound, frustrate, and irritate both sides of the aisle, you know you're doing <laughs> something right. And that is what the mantis has seemingly been able to do just by being its own little weird self. So right. first off is that this praying mantis is an argument for, or an example it's proposed for the existence, the reality of evolution, is in this paper by... Suzanne Joachim, Mandeep Grewal uh, from Butte College. And this is all part of a, a larger set of papers, I think, on biology under Libre Texts. I uh, will have that link, of course. Uh, this is section 4.3, Evidence for Evolution. And I'm just going to mention uh, basically what they're saying here in this paper to summarize is that, you know, you can look at a picture of a horse from the 1800s, right, 1848, yeah. and it hasn't really changed much. You can recognize it as a horse. But if we go back through the fossil record and what's talking about is how do we get this evidence for evolutionary development throughout the millennia, the, the, the millions of years it takes, millions of years that it takes for animals to evolve from simple creatures, from other planets. Well, we have evidence from fossils. That's what they're pointing out. If you take a look at horses, they were really tiny when they started out, about the size of a fox. And then now they've grown over the, uh, you know, by, by conditions of food, weather, geology, they have grown into the size they are now as successful animals. And of course, we've dominated them and ride them around and, and put funny hats on them. Like we, uh, how do we conquer all animals uh, that become uh, somewhat pets and are useful to us? But specifically with the praying mantis here, they go on with these different sections. Okay, so you have fossil records you can point to for the evidence of evolution. You have evidence from living species, which is uh, what can we look at creatures now and determine from, you know, from them currently you can have comparative embryology, vestigial structures, which is, uh, you know, what no longer is useful to an organism that they, that we believe that they used to have. Like right. the whale, why are the nostrils, if they're a mammal, why are the nostrils on top of their head now? Because it, right. it fits for swimming. It's much better than being on the front or the bottom. Uh, you can compare DNA. You can have evidence from biogeography, but we're going to look at specifically just quickly here, what they have in the paper under their section of comparative anatomy. And what it says is scientists can learn a great deal about evolution by studying living species. They can compare the anatomy, embryos, DNA of modern organisms to help understand how they evolved. And just here by this little figure, they explain what comparative anatomy is as opposed to homologous structures and analogous structures. So they say comparative anatomy here. They take a look at uh, cats, whales, 
praying mantis legs and boatman and water boatman flipper legs, a little insect that is comparable. So what they're saying is they're in this diagram is mammals such as cats and whales have homologous limb structures. And that means with a different overall look, but the same bones. Okay. Cats and whales don't look the same, but they have a similar bone structure. Right. Insects such as praying mantis and water boatmen also have homologous limbs. Cat legs and praying mantis legs are analogous. Okay. So that means they look similar, but they're different from evolutionary lineages. They're from different lineages. So they look the same, right? And the same as structure, but they're obviously two different things. So comparative anatomy is the study of similarities and differences in the structures of different species. Similar body parts may be homologous structures or analogous structures. Both provide evidence for evolution. Homologous structures are structures that are similar in related organisms because they were inherited from a common ancestor. So earlier what you're talking about, the common ancestor they think may be a cockroach or something similar. Or a termite or, yeah. Or yeah. termite, right? Yeah. And it's a, so it's a common, simpler bug maybe, but from that, different things have sprung up over the millions of years since. Right. The paper goes on to say, uh, these structures may or may not have the same function in the descendants. This figure 433 shows the upper appendages of several different animals. They all have the same basic pattern of bones, although now they have different functions. All these animals inherited this basic bone pattern from a common ancestor. Analogous structures. Now, this is where it's more interesting because maybe we do share something with the eight-foot-tall mantis creature, even though we're totally different organisms. It's a bug. We're a mammal. Analogous structures are structures that are similar in unrelated organisms. The structures are similar because they evolved to do the same job, like your your arms. I'm interjecting here as we go along. You can tell yes. my, my, my not-so-smart uh, comments are interfused with this uh, smart paper. <laughs> in that, yeah, you have legs, right? But our legs are not like bug legs. No. Uh, but they have the same function. My dog okay. has four legs, but That's right. I like to call her front two legs arms. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, how do you, yeah. what would be better on uh, jeans on a dog? Do you put the, yeah. do they have the waistline around the entire length of the dog or just right. around their stomach? Just around yeah. the, the back two right. legs, yeah. Because jeans fit legs. So again, that's another way of looking at it or thinking about it. The paper goes on to say, not because they were inherited from a common ancestor. Okay, so we don't have uh, some yellow monkey man in a <laughs> in an underground tunnel in Bulgaria waiting to be discovered and he's going to be pounded from clay into a human being or maybe something else like a T cell right right uh, and grow into anything this is obviously if you believe in evolution we have different ancestors no matter what planet you're from for example the wings of bats and birds shown in the figure that follows they look similar on the outside and have the same function However, wings evolved independently in the two groups of animals, bats and birds, right? Interesting. Right. So they do the yeah, same I mean, thing. Yeah, that makes but... sense. They don't fly the same. I, I had no. never thought about this. That's pretty fascinating. And this is apparent when you compare the pattern of bones inside the wings, right? Right. All right. Well, to wrap up this paper, essentially the, the little uh, diagram here shows you parts of the bones which are similar. So the, the examples they provide for homologous mammals, right? A cat leg and a whale flipper have the same bones, but of course they look different, right? And again, I'm, I am no scientist. This is, uh, but what it, apparently what the chart's showing here is that it's a diagram of four, and this is what's interesting, is that for homologous animals, which we just explained, the cat leg and the whale flipper are the same. Homologous insects, like the praying mantis and the water boatman flipper leg, yeah. 
have the same parts and are basically the same uh, structure, but they're not exactly the same. The water boatman, that's that little bug that swims around on its back, I think. I think so, right? It has yeah. a little, yeah, it's got the little yeah. flipper, the water skipper. Because I, like, I, I had to Google it while you were talking about it. I was like, what is that? And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, I know that guy. I've seen, you see him when you're out on a lake or something. He's cute. Right, dude. right. He's, like swims upside down and backwards, I think. I think I could be wrong. They're very, Again, yes, they're very not cool. A <laughs> <laughs> not a scientist. Not a scientist. Here's the point of that, that diagram, though, where they're talking about being analogous, like an analogy, yeah. right? Is yeah. that the cat leg and the praying mantis leg are similarly shaped. They've got that that crook, that bend. Yeah. But two different species, of course. And so it's an, an analogy, but different bones with a similar pattern. Same thing with the whale flipper and the boatman leg. They both paddle water, but they look completely different. So it's an analogy for a flipper, but two different things. Anyway, so that's what I'm saying is that, okay, so talk about the differences between humans and mantis people is that, yeah, two different species, but they both evolve, if you believe in uh, evolution, in two different pattern lines of lineages for utilizing the same function. Right. At the end, you both want to pilot a spaceship. Yeah. So you have similar things, but I got bug arms and I got right. bug legs. Well, too many legs on the spaceship or whatever, it just didn't need those, so it pared it down to two, perhaps. Right. That's why, like I said, what's more efficient for doing these kinds of things? Perhaps, as Patrick described- The raccoon lucked out with thumbs. See, wash it because they like to wash their food. <laughs> As with Patrick said, it's like this thing had the motion, the motor functions of a human, but did not look human. Right. But it did the same thing because, uh, again, would it be more efficient to look and act and move like a bug with the quick, uh, well, if you're just going to eat bugs for the rest of your uh, evolutionary life, sure. If you're yeah. going to do bigger things, maybe we, our shape is more evolutionarily efficient. Yeah. So that's one idea. Now, here's the other interesting getting back to eyes. Okay. So, and this is what's funny is that, okay, and uh, you can take your uh, your preconceived notions as you will from the source of this article, which is from the Institute for Creation Research, the ICR.org. So you know what their stance is. Yeah. 3D praying mantis vision confounds evolution. And this is from, uh, this article is written by Jeffrey P. Tompkins, PhD, quickly skimming over this article and his argument, in the animal kingdom, many types of creatures use stereo vision to determine the distances between them and visible objects. In humans, each of our eyes records a slightly different version of what is observed, right? That's how we get the 3D effect. Mm -hmm. That's what 3D glasses do for you. Right. These two different views are then accurately merged in our brains to produce a single image computationally using the difference between the two images to allow us to visually gauge depth and distance. It's like I just told you earlier, my friend uh, uh, who lost an eye has trouble with depth perception and he didn't know right. how large or big that fly was or how far away it was. Right. It was just close up. So it looked huge to him. Right. That's why, you know, animals, again, in, we're predators and uh, it's, it makes it advantageous for us to gauge the distance of prey so our eyes are in the front of our heads. This is me talking. Yes. Animals who usually get preyed upon have eyes on the sides of their heads because they need to see what's coming at them. Right. So the difference here in mantises uh, is, as this paper says, this process referred to as stereo vision isn't unique to humans. Animals like monkeys, dogs, bats, cats, and horses also use it. Interestingly, in the vast world of insects, the only creature to have stereo vision is the praying mantis. Already got a leg up, and the rest yep. of you bugs. Four legs up. Well, six legs. 
And I meant four when I said four just then, before the emails come in. I meant the mantis <laughs> has the four legs on the <laughs> right. ground and the other two are up in the air. So that's why. Right. Well, that's well, really, it's got two legs up. It's got two legs up on it. There you I just an extra, yeah. an extra set. <laughs> well, Dr. Tompkins goes on to say, this is a big conundrum to evolutionists because all other types of insects have eyes on the sides of their heads. And I think maybe arachnids are different, counted differently. That's yeah. an argument. Uh, well, yeah, that's not an insect, go. technically. No, not really. Right. Like right. scorpions. Uh, yeah. Technically not a, a bug. Right. And there are rules for that. A visual setup, which requires a completely different type of neurological processing system. So when you have eyes in the front of your head and stereo vision, your brain needs to work in a totally different way than if your eyes are on the sides of your head, is uh, what I've... Uh, boiled this down to, uh, he goes in to say, evolutionists believe all the different kinds of insects evolved from a common ancestor over 550 million years, as you were saying, and that cockroaches and mantises diverged from a common ancestor about 200 million years ago. But no creature intermediate between a mantis and a cockroach has ever been found, either alive or in the fossil record. Fossil mantises encased in amber and alleged to be up to 128 million years old are clearly distinguishable as mantises and show no signs of evolving from a cockroach. Mm. It's its own thing, maybe, or maybe right. it's from another world. Yeah. Uh, I just blew the lead on it. Sorry. Uh, no, that's all right. Maybe that's what was in the cure object. It could Normal be a little pilot. Mantis. That's what I was thinking. It's like, <laughs> you poured coffee on me, you jerks. Or, yeah. you know, hot water. Those, these dang kids goofing around, yeah. messing up my uh, my little house. Uh, but he liked to play with them. It's like, uh, you know, you put me in the bag, I'm going to escape. The paper goes on to say, now this is interesting because this is what you were talking about with vision and in an experiment, which highlights and uh, elucidates this idea. In this new study, researchers actually created tiny little insect glasses. And they're very hip looking. If you look at the photo, very, hmm. maybe like something Prince would wear, purple. And I think one's green. Uh, it goes on to say, they created these tiny little insect glasses and glued them to the heads of mantises with beeswax. And there's a there's also a link to a YouTube video. Then they show the insects specialized movies that mimic the presence of tasty moving prey. The image trickery was so good that the mantises would attempt to snatch up the imaginary prey. So they, they believed what they were seeing. By using specialized dots in the images and measuring the mantis's response, it was determined that the mantis version of stereo 3D image processing was completely different than humans or other animals. Okay. My point here, they're their own thing. Unlike right. humans who can sense the details of individual objects in static pictures based on the perception of depth, right? You can see in a photo, like that person standing next to the Jeep is not, it's not a Jeep man. <laughs> it's like, right. he's a different thing standing right. in front of this other objects where we talked about this scenario a long time ago. I had friends that went on a safari in Africa and, and they were all on an open top uh, Range Rover. You know, there's like six people and they were taking photos and they, they came up on a pride of lions and, uh, and, you know, the guy says, oh, be very careful now. Just just don't move. Just be very silent. You can take photos. Don't move. Don't start flapping your arms. And my friend said, well, why? Because then the lion is going to notice like, hey, you're not just a giant animal with big round red, you know, round rubber legs, whatever, right. like four big round leg donut legs. You're a bunch of different animals standing on top of this other structure and you might be tasty. You're an hors d'oeuvre tray. Exactly. You're crudité. <laughs> you, because- yeah they then will distinguish that you are different from the thing that you're standing on, not as all one thing, which is fascinating in how animals perceive reality. Yeah. Okay, so going back to what the paper says here, 
Unlike humans who can sense the details of individual objects and static pictures based on the perception of depth, which, which is what I just said, the mantis is only concerned with sensing the parts of images that are actually moving. Amazingly, the overall image can be completely different in the right and left eye. You can look at two different pictures with two different, each of your different eyes. But as long as the part of the image that is moving is the same, this is what the mantis zeroes in on, something humans cannot do. As it turns out, this unique form of stereo image processing is especially useful at neurologically processing targets of prey moving at very high speeds, which is common to the rapidly flying insects that many mantises feed on. So if okay. you believe, and again, I, I'm not making an argument for evolution or creationism, but it's something, a skill that they have, which allows them to be very efficient predators okay. as opposed to, and also doing their dance. So they're, again, yeah. they're a creature unto itself, perhaps. The article concludes, not only is this type of image processing unprecedented in the alleged insect evolutionary tree, but apparently unknown in the entire animal kingdom. This amazing system of high-speed stereo image processing and the myriad of cellular components underpinning the system are irreducibly complex. We don't understand it. It's so complex. And it's the only thing, apparently, he's saying in nature that does this. That's my interpretation. And the last paragraph goes, these numerous examples of unimaginable complexity found in nature are death to evolutionary theory that claims complex traits can somehow emerge bit by bit. The sudden appearance of highly sophisticated all-or-nothing systems in the spectrum of animal life with no evolutionary precursor can only be explained as the handiwork of an omnipotent creator. That is the doctor's words. Uh, yeah, doctor's, right, we're just right. saying that's we're just saying conclusion. that's his argument is that yeah. this thing is so unique, and especially you could tell by the way it processes visual imagery in stereo, unique yeah. to itself, that this thing did not evolve from cockroaches or anything else. Right, right. Right, okay. because wouldn't yeah. other insects utilize the same thing? Right. Because it's so efficient. Well, there you go. So just a, an insight into how irreducibly and independent, complex. like independent development. That is a, exactly what I'm getting at. It's an outlier. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's fascinating. So as I wrap up my section here, what you said earlier about respectable papers don't tackle these kinds of stories. Uh, and it's understandable, unless yeah. you're the star, the Inquirer, the Weekly World News, all that. They don't take it seriously. And I said earlier, well, it depends on how old they are and who's doing the talking and the discovering and the presenting. Right. When you say how old they are, you're referring to the, uh, the evidence. Not the right. not the source. Yeah. No, yeah. if you're a guy that last week took this uh, with a cell phone and yeah. claims it's uh, real or it was chasing you down the street on your bike, yeah, you're not going to get a whole lot of coverage from, let's say, the more uh, academic-minded outlets. Right. And you might be thinking, okay, this is all some new fandangled, creepy pasta kind of story. It just it, it happened. It just, you know, just occurred when the internet popped up. Right. Uh, this is all baloney. People are just trading stories. Hold on, then. Because we just found an article from the Smithsonian Magazine uh, from correspondent Catherine J. Wu, who we've mentioned before, I believe. We've a uh, great yes. writer. She's, uh, yeah. she's done some other, uh, uh, perhaps with Nazca, maybe. And this article is called Possible Half-Human, Half-Praying Mantis Carving Found on Ancient Rocks. The subtitle, The Puzzling Glyph, which bears some resemblance to the, quote, squatting man motif, suggests that insects have long held a place in human lore. Now, there's some interesting aspects of what's being claimed here. But first off, that they're just, everybody seems to be in agreement. It's Mantis Man. 
Right. Okay, so right. here's, the, here's right. The, the, the short article here, quickly. A few years ago, researchers stumbled upon an unexpected find in central Iran, a strangely shaped glyph with a spindly body sporting six limbs, a triangular head, and two bulging eyes. Described as half-human, half-praying mantis, the curious figure, described in a paper recently published in the Journal of Orthoptera Research, still largely eludes explanation, but it may represent an insect-themed variant of the so-called, quote, squatting man, which is described here as a circle-heavy motif, which means that it's got a lot of circles in the, uh, the artwork here, that adorns ancient rock faces found worldwide, reports Daisy Hernandez for Popular Mechanics. Not okay. just culturally specific. This is found all over the world. Right. Which to me is significant. Or yeah. we have, a, we're back to our common human dream that we all have, the same creatures, okay? First spotted during a series of surveys conducted between 2017 and 2018, the five and a half inch long rock carving initially befuddled researchers. Eventually, however, it caught the attention of a team of entomologists and archaeologists who set out to give the glyph a proper story. Careful inspection led the entomologist to conclude that the carving likely depicted the head and grasping forelimbs of a praying mantis belonging to the genus Impusa, which is native to the region. That makes sense. It's raised and open. These buggy legs have been splayed out to the glyph sides to suggest a threatening stance. Huh? What right. we just talked about. Hinting yeah. perhaps that its creators had reason to admire or even fear the predatory insects. Especially if they were eight feet tall. That's, that's yeah. me saying that. That's not the Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, but again, it's that, uh, that threatening uh, display, the dance here. The rest of the gift's anatomy was more mysterious, reports Hannah Osborne for Newsweek. Camping the figure's middle limbs were a pair of cross loops that reminded the researchers of a well-known glyph called the Squatting Man. Featuring a human-like figure flanked by small circles, the unusually ubiquitous figure scratched into rock faces across several continents is so bizarre that one researcher has proposed that the circles represent an extreme aurora that may have streaked across the skies worldwide thousands of years ago. Now we're in Graham Hancock territory. Yeah, right. Unfortunately, right. not much can be said of the odd hybrid. Sanctions in Iran prevent researchers from radiocarbon dating the find, which, based on the site where it was found, can only be dated to the massive range of 4,000 and 40,000 years ago. Again, we're in Graham Hancock territory. And it just goes on to say, as the authors write in their study, the praying mantis has long held a special place in human lore, featuring even in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, where they served as deities that led souls to the underworld. Oh, I read that already. You, there Early. you go, right? Yeah, yeah. scratching yeah. the rock thousands of years ago, the bug yeah. may have held a different meaning, which for now remains just as mysterious as its creators. So yeah. universal for the world here, image, combined with a, a squatting man or a humanoid more like figure. So it's still a mystery. But again, my uh, finding on this, which is interesting, is that it's, uh, at least by researchers, archaeologists, entomologists, that they are seeming to agree that it is a hybrid half-man, half-mantis, which is what we're talking about, which is 4,000 at least years old, or up to 40,000 years old, and universal around the world. And what does that mean? And for me, this is what I find the comparison as, is that you can take other things that we've talked about, the mysterious Aboriginal rock art of the Wangina sky beings in Australia, in the Kimberley region of Northwestern Australia. Yes. And that dates back at least 60,000 years, maybe much older. And people say, you know, you ask the uh, Aboriginal peoples and they're like, well, yes, that's uh, what our ancestors called the sky beings, the star people, the sky people. 
And you will have, again, not a knock on that researcher, but say like, well, that's very sweet, but uh, we know that, you know, there's no sky people that can't exist. So these are just mythical creatures that, uh, deities. And uh, I just find it so funny when people will come in who are not from there to tell other people what their legends mean to them. Yeah, right. It's like, well, no, no, this is what you mean. It's like, that's the whole thing. Don't tell me what I saw. It's not right. a crane. It's not an octopus. It was a praying mantis. I've seen those before. Right, uh, right. So that's my little soapbox thing. But that's fascinating in that, yeah, you have these uh, figures, again, like the Wangina, big bulbous white face heads, large bulbous eyes, big bulbous nose, do not look human, could be a dream, I mean, but but a shared one. And you see these figures all around the world too. Well, so let's circle back a little bit here. We're talking about how long have these things have been around? How sentient are they? Are they just biological creatures? Are they visitors from another world? Uh, you know, if you believe any of this at all. One thing we want to go back to is episode 155 of our show, which was called Abduction at Devil's Den, where we had the guest on Terry Lovelace. And he's actually been on a few times. Uh, he came back when he uh, released a second book called uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, which, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, is uh, stories from folks who heard his story and said, hey, you know, this happened to me and it's got a lot of common ground. So we're going to play this segment from that episode. Uh, here's the part to understand about this. That's an abduction story. The whole story is really fascinating. This picks up after he's uh, ex had the experience and he's talking about what he encountered inside a spacecraft that came down and plucked him and his buddy off of a, uh, a remote mountain area in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the Midwest. That's the setup here. He's explaining the beings, the different beings that he saw inside the spacecraft. And so I'm just going to ask Sarah to play this segment right here from episode 155. And there was a third entity there that I should mention, and that was the insectoid thing. Now, all the frightening things I witnessed, I would have thought that would have been the most frightening, but it wasn't. Uh, it was weird. It was just an odd experience because I remember I, I heard the woman screaming and then there's a lapse. And then I heard Toby screaming, oh my God, oh my God, no, no, no. And then the next thing I recall was I'm being levitated just from my feet straight up and onto this table. And I remember thinking that the table should be cold, but it's not, it's warm. And then I thought, oh my God, it's warm because there'd been a, a dozen bodies or more on this thing. And there was an insectoid thing. A lot of people have reported seeing this thing. A lot of people call him what I called him. I called him Dr. Bug. And it had a mantis head with two bulbous eyes with um, strands of fine hair. The, the eyes were multi-lensed. You know how a fly's eyes have multiple lenses? And there were bits of hair that stuck out between the eyes. Between the lenses. The lenses, yes. Yeah. The individual and lenses. And... It had uh, an insectoid type mouth and I was screaming. And I remember that I would fill my lungs with air and I would scream as loud as I can. And I can't hear a thing. I can't hear anything. And that confuses me. So that makes me scream more. And then I realized that my screaming has annoyed Dr. Bug here. And this thing turns because he's at my feet. They're doing something to my lower back. And I have uh, early onset of. Uh, degenerative spine disease that the VA graciously gave me 30% disability for. And uh, I'm screaming and it turns this big bulbous head and gets down close to my head and I could hear him clearly in my head, like any spoken word, without accent, but I heard him speak and he was annoyed. And he says, why are you screaming? Stop screaming. 
You know we don't hurt you. You know we take you back. Stop screaming. And he had this green colored digit. And I always see him in my mind's eye with a lab coat on, but I don't think that's, I think that's something my mind conjured up. And he reached over and he tapped me on the forehead and I was gone and I was out. This mantis creature, he didn't seem to be the one in total charge or, as you say, in control of the whole show. Was he more of a medical entity? Or were, what do you think that his, um, his station was? My opinion has softened over the years in the passage of time. And initially, I wanted nothing more than to go back and shoot these things. And like I said, that's softened with time. And uh, I honestly think that if I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Bug and have a cup of coffee or uh, whatever, I think he'd say, you know, hey, man, just doing my job. You know, I, I didn't get any malice. And maybe that's why I didn't have this great fear of him. I had the greater fear of the guy that got in my head. That guy scared me. But yeah, Dr. Bug, I don't think was malicious because were he malicious, he could have killed me easily. Terry actually came back to our show later to talk about his second book. And Forrest, you had a section from that that you wanted to share, right? Well, yes, because this is also part of Terry's description. Now, to set this up for people who have not listened to those episodes, and I highly recommend that you do. They're one of our most popular two-part series because it's originally his book, Incident at Devil's Den, and then the follow-up to Reckoning, which is unbelievably stuff that he thought was too outrageous to put in the first book. So <laughs> he wrote his second book, and this, but it's also a, a terrific book because there's about 50 anecdotes from people who wrote in after reading the first book saying, again, like Patrick, like, hey, this happened to me too. I got to tell you about this. And he sifted through those stories and, and put the 50 that he thought were the most significant, I think, and gripping. Oh, and to be clear, uh, Patrick is relaying the story. It didn't happen to Patrick, but uh, but his friend, uh, as was told to him. And then Patrick experienced his own thing weirdly in the woods with a bright orange light while there were this dog. That's for another time. But in this case, yeah. I wanted to quickly read this section here from the second follow-up book because it's not just when he was with Toby, his friend, while they were in the Air Force, this happened. He recalls these screen memories and these happenings to him when he was a child. As with many abductees, this has been going on for their entire lives, and this also involved a mantis man. All right, to set this up again, I want to read this passage from Terry Lovelace's second book, the following up called Devil's Den, The Reckoning. And as we just said, this was extra material that he was worried about putting in the first book because he thought, even though the first book is, yes, most people are going to think it's outrageous. And it is, and to his own admission, it is all outrageous stuff, but it's his testimony, his truth. So this second book, though, is more in-depth about earlier experiences he had as a child that kind of pieced it all together that predates, of course, his time in the Air Force and his time with Toby and their camping trip to Devil's Den. As we said, with most or many experiencers, it's a lifetime of encounters which are screened by memories and these only pop up with very vivid dreams. But this also talks about earlier encounters with mantis creatures and the setup. So just to set up this passage, as Terry talks about it, he believes he was visited in his childhood by these other strange beings that would appear in his bedroom at night as what he called monkey men. They appeared to be monkeys, but they had these strange, really creepy face masks on 
with the eyes and the mouth cut out, I believe. I'm trying to remember this. Like they were pie plates, those old paper pie plates or uh, paper plates over their faces that were shaped to look like monkeys. And they kept trying to get him to come with them to go play. And I think sometimes he did, sometimes he did not want to, and then they would get mad at him. But this is one such incident that he recalls. And so I'm going to read this passage from his book again, Devil's Down the Reckoning. I watched, waited for a shadow to move or dart across a wall. I reached for the comfort of Ernie's bayonet underneath my pillow. Then it hit me. For the first time in all these weeks, I'd forgotten to take the bayonet out from underneath the mattress after lights out. I failed to follow the routine, and they arrived. My weapon was out of reach and useless. Did they know? How could they know? Of course they know. I might have gone with the monkey men once or twice in the past. Those memories were not clear, but it was clear the experiences were real and not a dream. I had dreams about Sue, and this is me talking here. Uh, Sue was a alien-human hybrid that was liaisoning with Terry later on and tried to explain a few things to him, but it was basically his, uh, his contact with this extraterrestrial presence. Continuing on. I had dreams about Sue, and I could tell the difference. That's how I met Sue. I took the monkey man's paw, and then I felt a twirling sensation and flash. I was in the playroom with Sue and the other kids. Days after seeing the UFO in the backyard, I would be abducted again from my bed, and I experienced a frighteningly real dream. This was a new memory. It was one of a handful of recollections that spontaneously returned to my conscious mind in mid-2018. That night it began as a dream, but I couldn't shake it off and dismiss it like a regular nightmare. It took time to fade. I don't believe it was a mere dream or a fantasy. It felt too familiar. But this was no trip to the playroom. When the monkey men came for me, I felt a calmness sweep over me. I felt no fear or aggression, just the expectation that they had come for me again. They didn't speak to me this time. This was a different experience, one without dialogue or negotiation. There was no polite conversation. I was not being offered an invitation. I believe they knew my true intention was to kill one of them, and that may have changed the rules. Abruptly, there was the twirling motion, flash, and I found myself in a different room. Instinctively, I yelled, Sue, help me! But Sue never came. Just two big insect-looking beings were in charge. I met them for the first time. The monkey men were there too, but they no longer wore white masks or had tails. They were worker bees, as I described them. They used hands instead of paws to subdue me. The whole affair had a clinical feel like being at the doctor's office. There was a bright overhead light. This may have been the origin of my fear of dentists. I was naked and on an examination table. The insect-like beings were seven-foot-tall praying mantis-like things, complete with triangular-shaped heads and huge compound eyes. I would meet one of them again 14 years later. It would wear a white lab coat when we met again in 1977. The monkey men were there too. Just as in 1977, they no longer had the slightest primate features. I saw them for what they truly were. I was immobilized and scared to death. 
I know I was screaming. The small gray ones are all around me and place me face down on the table. I was immobile, but I do not recall straps or restraints of any kind. The ubiquitous gray ones I encountered deserve an observation here. There are likely many different species based on the accounts of others. I believe the ones I encountered were not living conscious beings. They are not sentient like you and me. They may be a mix of machine, quantum computing, nanotechnology, and organic material. They lack free will and are not able to determine their own actions. They do as they are told. They are engineered and manufactured somewhere. Even at the age of six or so, I called them worker bees. Many others have used that exact name for them. The insectoid thing wasted no time. Long fingers deftly manipulated stainless steel instruments of some kind. He did something to my lower spine like what they did to me in 1977. They never touched my knee where the implants were found in 2012. Not that I recall. While my anxiety was managed slightly, there was no control of the pain. The pain ran from my tailbone straight up my spinal column and registered as a strong electric shock that came in pulses. It was one every three seconds or so. I screamed. I know I screamed. The next day, I was so hoarse, I could barely speak. That's all I can remember. I should say, that's all I was allowed to remember. So there you go, another description of mantis beings, about the same height, same psychic abilities, telepathically, same description as being in charge or powerful, but with different slight descriptions of having fingers, of being mobile, of being in control of the procedures and of uh, these worker bees, these monkey men. So once again, an example of analogous or parallel descriptions from somebody completely different to this experience, but describing similar things. And maybe with these mantis men, everything is connected. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I've had some time with this now, you know, not too long, a couple of weeks where it's <laughs> cursory research folks. Sure, still, sure. I've learned a lot. Forced, I really love the stuff that you brought to the show uh, independently of me. Yeah. Uh, the evolution stuff was really fascinating. I love the term startle display and masquerade. And we should adopt those ourselves. When uh, I, I have a few of them already. <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced. Uh, it's I different from peacocking, short. by the way. It's no, no. Yeah, totally. It's not beautiful to look at. It's uh, awkward, ugly, and I stopped just short of soiling myself. But yeah, uh, sometimes, yeah. I, like I said before, in all seriousness, people say, well, you don't, you say you don't, you're not afraid of anything. It's like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not afraid of the concepts, but I can be startled and I may put it on a display. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> but, to, but to your point is that, you know, with us looking at this thing, my biggest question was, okay, this thing of all the things that have been described on spaceships and in abductions, these things seem to be the ones in charge often. They're not the worker bees. They're not the middlemen. They're not the robots with the 50s goggles and shooting sparks. These things yes. are calling the shots. So are they some kind of advanced evolutionary race? Are they their own thing? I've heard also that they're, of course, like the Earth and human beings, there's other animal species here. In the universe, are there different types of beings, different species, different, uh, you know, like I said, uh, water-based things? I always like the René Abergenois uh, character that's liquid. 
on the planet. Yes. Everybody's liquid and they all kind of blend together. And he lives in a jar when he's uh, not trying to hold it together as a human form. So uh, that's, that's from Star Trek. But yeah, to your yes. point, man, it, it's like, that's the big question for me. How do these things get here? Did they evolve? What do they share that's similar? What do they want here? Or maybe to your point, have they always been here? Well, that's my thought on this. Like, uh, you know, I love the space story and the aliens and abduction as much as the next person. And I'm not putting down uh, Terry Lovelace's experience or sure, any sure. of the experiences of folks who think that mantises are aliens. They might be. But here's a th another thing that I would like to posit. What if they have been here all along? What if we're the latecomers? What if they were already here when humanity evolved? Because what's interesting to me is in, in one of the two accounts on the Muskie River, the gentleman says, you know, I looked up at it and it was going up the bank across the river from me and there was a clear white sky behind it. And at that point, he could really make out that there was something there. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get back to that whole predator description. It's trying right. to disappear. It's disappearing. It's fading out or there's a glowing light and then it sort of vanishes. And what struck me as very poignant about his description of that particular moment was that he goes, it was still there. I know it was still there. I just couldn't see it. He didn't buy into the fact that it mm -hmm. had fully disappeared. He was like, this thing is camouflaging. It's cloaking. It's masquerading, as we saw in the uh, paper that Forrest was talking about, whether it's the leaf bug or whatever, or the, or the scuttlefish or whatever develops these abilities to disappear. Somehow it's masquerading. Maybe these things have always been here, and maybe they evolved to be invisible to people as a means of self-preservation, invisible to humanity as a means of self-preservation, which would imply that not only is there the possibility of them, there's the possibility of all kinds of creatures that might be able to do that. They yeah. can be around us all the time and we wouldn't know it. So, right, right. Ab so my absolutely. possible pitch yeah. here is that if you're one of those folks who's like, well, I can't buy into any of this alien stuff, I say, hey, you know what? This time I might be with you. Maybe it's not alien. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe it's not capable of uh, carrying on a conversation or maybe it doesn't have a language, but maybe it is here and maybe it's just evolved to hide from us and maybe they're all around us right now. That's going to wrap up this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with very special guest, theoretical physicist and Harvard professor, Dr. Avi Loeb. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk Drawer in the meantime, which we often do live on video for our patrons at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at BW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research in the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, The Mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi. Good evening. I'm Heath Bennett. You're listening to Astonishing Legends. <laughs> hey, you there with the tentacles. Your order's ready. E. T. E. T. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. 
visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Thank you.